Once again, the thrilling adventures of the shadow, the hard and relentless fight of one man against the forces of evil. These dramatizations are designed to demonstrate forcibly to old and young alike that crime does not pay. And now, to the shadow. The shadow, who aids the forces of law and order, is in reality Lamont Cranston, wealthy young man about town. Years ago in the Orient, Cranston learned a strange and mysterious secret the hypnotic power to cloud men's minds so they cannot see him. Cranston's friend and companion, the lovely Margot Lane, is the only person who knows to whom the voice of the invisible shadow belongs. evil lurks in the hearts of men. Dion and Blake, no. <laughs> yes, so. <laughs> Maybe this is how they did the phone thing. I'm calling Blake up now. Hey, Blake, how are you? It sounds I'm sound like suddenly, suddenly I'm on the phone. Yes, he's over there. Four, four, five. Okay, sorry. Hi. Hey. <laughs> Welcome back to another exciting episode of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. It's our anniversary. <laughs> Our anniversary. Our anniversary. 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 Um, hey, thank you for coming back. If you if you got through um, me talking to death last week on on, on Bullet, uh, and you're still interested in in uh, hearing Speaking us. Speaking of Bullet and anniversaries, oh, I have a present for you. You got a present for me. Don't, don't take your pants off. Whoa, oh, wow, what is this? <laughs> it's that soundtrack we were talking about last you were, week. Yeah, because Blake and I haven't seen each other since we last recorded, so that's why. Holy crap, and you bought it? This is You said it was really expensive. The Blake, is, Blake has handed me in my uh, in my hands a uh, unopened copy. Not even a, It's not even a... Uh, a, a, a scratched, a, a scratched or, or a, a CDR. Copy. <laughs> yeah, it's an unopened. I hope you didn't just give me yours. No, no. I'm no, never no. going to listen to this. Wow. I managed to find... Another one for a completely reasonable price. <laughs> Holy crap. So this is unopened. Unopened. It's the bullet soundtrack that was that limited reissue by, was it Silver Screen? Yes, yeah, Silver Age Classics. Um, and you said it was done by the people who did um, the, the put out the Taken of the Pelham 1, 2, 3, so. maybe? I think it might have been. We're, it was, maybe it was we're by conflating the, film, the two. It was uh, by the Film School Monthly. Yes. Uh, film Score Monthly people. Disc made in Mexico, which is kind of apropos because that's where Mr. McQueen passed away, and he loved Mexico. And it has the original soundtrack album, which yeah. we talked about was kind of re-recorded. Yeah, okay, yeah. And then it has the cues actually from the movie as well. Which I don't think had ever been released, yeah, the actual cues. The, I think this is the first 
that time that, that was the happened. yeah I, that was good. It got me really excited. Holy crap! And I yeah, um, there was so much to talk about last week, and, and I, I, like I said, I probably bored the listeners to death. So we're gonna talk about we're gonna do some more. <laughs> talk about bullets some more. The one thing I didn't bring up, which I thought well, well there's tons of stuff, but and you're like, oh really, Dion? Was that there was a guy he used to hang out with named Jay Sebring, Steve McQueen, and Jay Sebring for some people who might know is a hairstylist, and he was a guy who like used to he did Jim Morrison's hair for that legendary picture of Morrison without a shirt on and his arms up. He gave him like the Alexander the Great look. He did Paul Newman's here. He was like a stylist yeah. from the late 60s. So McQueen used to hang out with him and the guy would help, you know, McQueen like, you know, he would go to stores with him and get, get these jeans. You look good in this and like that, even though I think the guy was heterosexual. Anyway, so one night he was supposed to hang out with J.C. Bring and, and, and go over a friend's house to, you know, have a couple drinks. But McQueen went and uh, started the night early, went to a bar and ended up just picking up a girl at the bar and went home and, and spent the night with her, didn't make it to the party. And that party ended up being at Sharon Tate's house, and that was where the Manson murders, you know, occurred that night. Mm-hmm. And uh, when all that came out, McQueen got so paranoid about that, and he was, like, doing coke at the time, so it didn't help in the yeah, 60s. Yeah. But <laughs> he found out when the Manson got caught, he was on the top of all their hit lists. So, he, you know, it was one of those things where he was so paranoid about all that. So that was another... Uh, and we have the... Quentin Tarantino's making a oh yeah you're right yeah a movie about the yeah. bands and stuff right and uh, yeah and there's Once a group about a time in Hollywood I think it's called yeah and there's a girl I know Lise Wheel uh, who uh, got a book coming out too on the Manson oh, big thing on them she might have even maybe interviewed him before he died because he passed away not too long ago but uh, yeah so yeah that's kind of so you know, today we're doing Helter Skelter yes the uh, TV movie no but you know what since we are here and you gave me a present um, I don't know if people know but since this is our anniversary this is what our fourth anniversary for the show right so this hits in September and um, but it's our 21st uh, anniversary family anniversary uh, for, for the for you and I as friends yeah. but also uh, if people if diehard listeners of the show will know that Blake turns 40 in September and we talked about don't it last remi- year don't remind me in the in the Christine episode and Blake has always given me presents on the show and I once in a while I give him I give Blake presents to us so I'm not such a total asshole like no, i gave no. you like that carpenter book you liked that time that you read Dion has given me you know? some very great presents over the years so i bought my a- favorite carpenter books called prince of darkness you gave me uh my virginity uh, i am legend oh yeah the original book uh the, what's his facebook robert matheson book. yeah richard richard, richard matheson so. not his brother roberts <laughs> i got a present for blake too for oh, his it's birthday present. It's oh my present. goodness it's wrapped and everything <laughs> it's right ra- it's wrapped and it's in Christmas paper because uh, I celebrate Christmas 365 days a year. Beautiful. So, Merry uh, Christmas. If you want to open that now, you want to save it. We're going to open this baby okay. now with my now, friends at home. I'm going to. This is live to tape. You um, know, and I want to say that Blake doesn't know what's going on here, so I he don't. doesn't know that he's about to be murdered. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a bond. There's anthrax. It is. It's all this powder. <laughs> Just put it near your mouth and nose. <laughs> Oh, uh, that's not talc. You know, there's also coincidence that kind of my my birthday ties into this episode a little bit, and As that it I did. and that I believe I share a birthday with R- with Lamont Cranston. With Lamont Cranston, we haven't got there yet. No, with uh, Walter B. Gibson. Oh, okay. These creator, uh, so, so, almost always. So now Blake is taking the wrapping off, and he's getting to the, the shitty the meat. The meat, which is just a, <laughs> a shitty used cardboard box that this came in. But I was so worried about damaging what's in it that I just kept it in the box that it came in. So now Blake is at that. So now I will give Blake, <laughs> if he needs a knife, that, that size open. But if you need okay, a knife, I think I, 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 here's I, 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 a knife, my, my MacGyver Swiss oh Army my knife. Oh, my goodness. I'm so... 
Glad I, I didn't fucking buy this. You know what it is? <laughs> oh, already? Yeah, because I was worried that... <laughs> I almost bought I this. I was worried you week. had it already. I was... Oh, I was... Here, that's, and that's why you, you can use this to... And that's that's gonna fall I'm, right apart because that's gonna it's also all that stuff. I'm surgically removing the um, removing the it, it, epidermis. <laughs> uh, it, it, he's using the bubble wrap, but it actually looks like a, a leftover pool cover. I know it because it's falling up. It's, sh it's shredding and, and it's all dusty. Yeah, watch out! Don't is, cut out. Cut cut away from yourself. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is, uh, one of those signs. Take a brief <laughs> break while we go to the hospital. <laughs> I'm okay. now breathing in the asbestos. Uh, the asbestos line. That's for a, some reason, this back is... back to McQueen last week. <laughs> so another reason for some why. reason, this is wrapped in... in asbestos. Because uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's fire retardant. In insulation. Yeah. <laughs> and that's another reason why McQueen died, because right, he put we'll it on his mouth. We'll have take a picture of this baby. Yeah, so there we go. I didn't know if you had it already since I we last talked. And I was actually perusing eBay recently. See, I see all the powder, see all the bits that came off yeah, there? Yeah, from I'm the... going to shake this baby yeah. off over here. Off. Look at that. I'm going to shake this baby off right into my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> no, don't put it in your mouth. <laughs> so, I mean, now, so we got to keep the audience up on what's going on here because, um, you know, this is all, this is I radio. Know. This is, <laughs> <laughs> it's a, uh, let's see if you can guess from the sounds I'm making. Okay. He's open. It's some sort of box and it's, uh, it's it, not even a fold No, I know. Yeah, so, so Blake's got a board game. I got Blake a board game. Dion is a, a board game enthusiast. Yes, especially has, ones has, of yesteryear. And has a quite a, a, a magnificent collection of board games of yesteryear. Uh, for people that know the show and know me, there's a certain person that is very special to me that we get talked about on the show very often. And his name is John Carpenter. I thought you were going to say Snake Plissken. <laughs> and back in the early 80s... They released a Escape from New York board game, yeah. and I've always wanted it. And and there you and go. Dion just delivered. I just gave you this, and it's and what Blake was alluding to that the the board the game itself the board game is not even. Um, yeah, you know how like when you playing a board game, it's usually like two pieces of cardboard that folds are, out. That it folds out. This it's, is just a single. Yeah. So when I opened it to inspect it, I was like, like I'm, I'm, I'm the chips. That <laughs> <laughs> was fucking chips. And I was gonna call Mister Yahoo four five seven and be like, Listen, Mister Yahoo four five seven. I'm nice. going to take it out of your ass. And then, I don't know, it says right, it was we're complete. Gonna, we've got to wrap the show up early. Yeah, because we're, we're going to play this baby. <laughs> before my parents get up. So, uh, well, Dion, this is one of the greatest gifts I've ever received. Oh, well. Thank you, you know, so much. I don't know how. I don't even know. I mean, I, I would assume the game is you have to get out of New York. <laughs> <laughs> I would assume Escape from New York that that would be. Do you want to keep all this to put it back in for the transport? Mm, I don't I don't Because it's raining today. I don't, I'll put it back in the box. But okay. I don't think I... You I'm, don't need I, the, the pool cover? I'm worried about this pool cover that's shedding. Yeah, I mean, I opened it up all over my bed. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's all... It's all... It, 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 it it's almost, falling apart. It's disintegrating as we speak. It almost has the same consistency of um, the cereal we ate Maybe on I the... Maybe could find a plastic bag. Maybe your mom can give me an old... Uh, she Christmas keeps, tree she recycles shop everything. Plastic <laughs> bag with a triple. Something big. Um... <laughs> It has the same, when we ate the cereal on the Batman cast, it has that same consistency, <laughs> which was another anniversary episode. And I should say that uh, last January, not this past one, but before. 2017. 2017, we did a- We opened uh, the the, uh, the season of that season out. <laughs> we, with a, a, a magnificent 
Escape from New York episode. Yeah, we delved into the the novelization and and on and all this different stuff, and we talked about Ernie Borgnine, the comics, the, comics, the uh, Kurt Russell, and all that stuff. And it's that was our of, a, that's an episode that I'm particularly proud of. Yeah, and that was one of our most successful episodes, like our or our favorite by uh, I think that's listeners. Our, I think it's now our third. Most downloaded, High, highest, most downloaded. But for for 2017, that was, was number one for it a was while. Crushing until and we, we didn't know what we couldn't we did, figure out what we the did Star Wars and the Joe. <laughs> in the lost, yeah, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. We couldn't figure out what the heck was going on that that people were seeking out the Escape from New York podcast. Um, well, that's fantastic. Well, now you're gonna have to go home tonight and find someone to play with <laughs> because I don't know if you can play by <laughs> you. Dang. You should be able to play by yourself because it's you're that's trying to get out of New York on your own. <laughs> you know, they should have an option. Yeah, I'll just play two to four adults. You know, and this is the another example of back in the day they'd make a board game out of every anything, which is kind of funny. You know, there's a you know this is what a rated R movie, and like you're gonna get this for your kid, <laughs> <laughs> or like King Kong. I have the Dino De Laurentiis King Kong, or it's That's a Jaws one, I think. Yeah, that I see sometimes. Yeah, and there's, there's I mean, this is I guess the hate. It's it, times have passed, but it was the heyday when you didn't have cell phones and internet and 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 stuff and cassette tapes and CDs. You play board games. I don't have as big of a collection as you do, but I do have. Say by the Bell, the yeah. original one, yeah. not the newer one. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Amazing. Starsky and Hutch. <laughs> <laughs> and now Escape from New York, the game. Yeah, we should get the, the uh, Mall Madness so we can like be the, like in the, remember the late ni- early 90s they had the, with the phone and it was all. And I just girl. ordered, and maybe we can do an episode where we just sit here and play it, <laughs> a horror version of Trivial Pursuit. <laughs> I just I just saw that come out the other day, and I just put that in my wish list for somebody, for, for my wife. Or, well, she doesn't listen to this thing. So I got I, I put that in, because that's brand new, the, the horror yeah, Trivial, I just trivial Pursuit. The, the week before we did this yeah. podcast. Um, so that would be a lot of voice work, that episode, because we're going to have to explain to everybody what's happening uh, if we play. <laughs> well, oh, what if we if do, I guess if it's Trivial Pursuit, we're reading what if it. We just, what if we just you did know? trivia? You know, it's not, but then no one will be answering it. We're like, who out there knows? Well, Somebody. you know, we'll give everybody a chance. Maybe we'll do it live. Ooh, how do we do that? Do it live. <laughs> do it live. No <laughs> pun intended. Fuck it. We're going to do it live. We'll Facebook stream that. We'll or... face, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll instant message <laughs> IM people. They can instant message us, and uh, we can get that show on the road. So, yeah, so, um, yeah, I did that because it's our anniversary for the show. It's uh, Blake and I met in late August 1997 which we did last year our predator podcast uh-huh. was the anniversary of our friendship because um we picked a movie that we both liked when we were little that we that we both had history with that when we met we still like today right mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. <laughs> so we did that for our 20th anniversary and then last year our our podcast show Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Welcome. I'm Dion Baia. I'm Jay Blake. Uh, we did last year the anniversary. What the hell did we do last year? We did Raiders, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Well, that was a, that was only that was last year already. Jesus, that doesn't seem like that was a year ago. So we we and, and some of our Facebook uh, uh, family know that we were having a little bit of trouble trying to figure out what we were going to do this year for anniversary because yeah. it was do we you know how do we top Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, at the same time. Do we stay with our theme that we've been doing, which was uh, our very first episode was the Dolph Lundgren Punisher film. Yep. And then our first anniversary was Batman. Uh, Tim Burton. Tim Burton's 89 Batman. Yeah. And then we kind of 
shot off for our for our next anniversary, our second anniversary. We did the Rocketeer. Yeah. So we we were staying in like kind of comic book vein, and then moving towards a pulpy. The same year we did the Rocketeer, which we 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 blew our wad early, which isn't a sexual term. I learned it, it has actually something to do with I think horse racing, maybe. I think it's. Uh, it's gambling. Okay, gambling. You're the one who told me that. Shoot your wad, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I know it for a completely different reason. But we did <laughs> Dick Tracy earlier in the year. We should have kept that one in our back pocket for an anniversary episode. We should have. And then last year we did, not as an anniversary, we did Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which we should have kept in our back pocket because this would have been fine. But we did Rocketeer our third year. Then last year, which was our fourth year, was Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, but so our this would third mean anniversary. Our th- so it was f- our, our inaugural episode was uh, Punisher Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> we're getting we're getting the timeline straight. Yeah, Tim Burton <laughs> Batman is the second one. We did Dick Tracy that year, but not as an anniversary. Then we did Rocketeer as our third anniversary, and then the next year, which was last year. No, the, our f- <laughs> wasn't it Rocketeer? It was, but it wasn't our third anniversary. It was our second, second anniversary. anniversary. Oh, I thought oh, because our first In going into yes. our third year. That's why I'm not good with math. And then after that. Uh, we did uh, last year. We did Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was our third anniversary. Yeah, our, going into our fourth year. The mentality was we were shooting off of we were doing comic books, but with Batman and then Rocketeer, we were kind of moving into pulpy yeah. territory. And then the Rocketeer is as Dion loves historical fiction. It's a it's a niche, and so we were trying to figure out what to do for our third anniversary, and we're like, should we do like the Shadow or the Phantom, and then stuff of that era, Dark Man, you know, stuff of, of yeah. like of su- superhero that's superhero, kind of that, still kind of pulpy, yeah. And then we decided that oh, let's do Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is kind of in the vein of the Rocketeer, where it takes yeah, place back it's then, also but like it's very inspired by series, the old serial short. Well, absolutely, it was a, it was an homage to or, or yeah pay tribute to those and then so this year we're like do we keep on that path or do we branch out to something else because like how do we there's like now we've done Raiders of the Lost Star we did like one of the biggest movies yeah. of all time <laughs> and we already did Dick Tracy and uh, which wasn't an anniversary we already did uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit so we were quickly running out of ideas and then we were you know we did Predator as our anniversary for our friendship and we're yeah. like do we do a and movie then we were like, like damn we should have done Star Trek we should have saved Star, Star Trek, Trek 6 <laughs> which we did a couple months ago to be our anniversary and then there was another one too we did uh, and I was like, darn, dang, we should have kept that. Maybe, I forget what it was, maybe Captain America or something. We uh, did do Captain America. This, earlier this year, and I was like, we should have saved that. Version. The one that never got properly released. And we did, we've did. we done Fantastic Four, the one that, the Roger Corman that never got released. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so then we were like, do we do something that we love, uh, like a Carlitos way or a Heat, something we, 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 we something met? huge like Terminator 2. Or like Terminator, we did, because we did the first Terminator some years ago. So we're like, you know, we're, we're trying to, because then it also has to be big too. We don't want to do a movie that's like... Uh, you know, like seconds or something that that's something that's that's a cult classic, but doesn't have the same resonance as yeah. Batman '89 or or Rocketeer. So I don't know how how well this movie is aged in terms of audience wise. I yeah. know it has a bit of a cult following. But we're I, doing the Shadow today. We're doing the sh- the sh- 1994's film adaptation of the Shadow. Hence the reference of. The shadow knows. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, and I feel like, you know what? You and I are of an age now, which is hilarious, um, that um, uh, 
we're old and I didn't realize I'm still a kid in my head. I'm still playing I with GI Joes and stuff like that. But technically, Jesus, when I was little, my, when my dad was my age now, we've, I was like we've, 10. We've had this discussion. You know, so my point, I'm getting around, I'm going around the houses a bit, but my point is that like people might not even realize the, 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 this goes back to radio and then the history. So it's like, I feel like we're going to be like regurgitating stuff. We talk about all the time, which I don't really want to keep doing. Yeah. Cause our, our regular listeners are like, Oh Jesus guys. Yeah. It's like, it's like a fucking one side of a record. Turn it over. <laughs> get to the other side. Yeah. You know, here was the thing. This is a movie that I remember when it came out and it was a big deal, big deal for me. I was way into yeah. it. And, you know, it's coming off. Me too. <laughs> it came out off the cut on, you know, on the heels of Batman and the rocketeer. I mean, clearly and Dick Tracy, Batman, which we've discussed in all these movies that we've, that uh, we just mentioned that we've done before. Batman kind of like, flung the doors open yeah in terms of you know getting things greenlit that may have never got greenlit yeah if it hadn't been for the success of batman one of them's the rocketeer for instance like that was definitely a direct uh answer disney's answer well i think you know also too is disney had such success with dick tracy after the rocketeer they're like let's do what you know because that you think about at that time but i would think even i mean i, I go we're going back a couple of years when we did dick tracy I mean, think when did Dick, what year did Dick Tracy come out? Nineteen ninety. So I mean, Dick Tracy got greenlit because of, yeah, <laughs> probably yeah. got greenlit because of maybe not because of the success of Batman, but because of the hype of Batman. Yeah, coming out and then up to and it. those are movies I think, particularly Dick Tracy and Batman, if I remember correctly, they were in development for ten years with the success of Superman. Yeah. So Superman does it, and then Batman and Dick Tracy take about ten years to come out. Because there's different people involved trying to get it off the ground, and then I think Rocketeer is created in the mid '80s. What's his face? Stevens, yeah. um, D- D- Dave Stevens, maybe. I don't, I don't remember. Off. We'll, we'll bring it. He's in our notes somewhere, uh, and we should know all this knowledge. But we always say that we have a card catalog set in our head. <laughs> so once in a while, we lose the cattle, the card between the bookcases, so everyone looks so we don't can't remember things. I think it's Dave Stevens, but anyway, so. Like and then because of the success of Batman, you get yeah you have uh, Ninja Turtles comes out yeah which we it. did too we did that as well yeah we did a double Turtles feature movie you get things like the Rocketeer finally get you know put into uh, into the cycle you know Dick Tracy gets you know probably boosted to the head of the line to get made because I mean Batman the hype for Batman was huge and Punisher came out unreleased. Domestically, but Punisher was made around the same time, but then you get the for the Captain America movie, which was you get the Corman Fantastic, <laughs> Fantastic Four, Four that Spider Man was member in development hell for for fifteen years at that point, and uh, then you get I think because of like that pulpy old school feel of Batman, a lot of the show, a lot of the movies. And you get the Flash TV show, which had a similar feel, but a lot of them DC Flash, yeah. because of that. That feel of of old timiness. Well, I feel like that, that Batman had. I think a lot of the movies that were getting greenlit or put into development had that feel, you know, like The Shadow. Well, they. I think they they realized like in Superman they they brought him to contemporary times. Although he is in Metropolis, he's in like a fictional world, which is kind of like New York City. But when they did. I mean, you have like Swamp Thing in the 80s, but that's like a B movie. But when you get to Batman, they decide with Batman, let's go back to like Bob Kane's original 19, 1939. And it's almost since it's Warner, I, I was putting the argument up that it's also maybe an homage to the gangster pictures of the Warner Brothers 30s, the Cagney and Bogart films. Um, so I think once they established that they put Batman in that 
in when it was conceived, the time frame, and it's so successful, they say, hey, we don't have to bring all these other characters, you, you know, because I think even early connotations of Dick Tracy, because they were going off of, um, uh, what the hell is that guy's name that I don't remember now? He's the three, 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 the, the guy that was writing Dick Tracy, who he took off after Chester Gould in the 70s and the 80s, which he's a really great writer. He brought it into contemporary times and it was working, but I think the idea was they were going to bring Dick Tracy into contemporary times. They were going to bring, um, uh, Collins, uh, uh, Al- Alan Collins, Dean, Co- something Collins. Oh, <laughs> it's darn. gonna be a couple. Yeah, of it's, it's gonna, gonna be, be a three, lot of this. three hours <laughs> of, us, of us like uh, trying to remember names. Um, um, <laughs> but um, my point is, since Batman did so well, I think they realize that they can have these ch- movies come out. And look at the Indiana Jones are doing well, all three oh, yeah, of those. Yeah. So they're like, yeah, hell, we can put it in the 30s and 40s, and people will eat that right up. We don't have to bring it because sometimes it kills it when you bring the character to like modern day. And you don't do it the right way. That rhymed, yeah. you know. Which but it's would, also, and that's the '80s mentality. Now you've let's, we're not even talking about how Marvel has done things, and you know, yeah. that, that's not even bringing in the. But customer. also, you know, I'm sure there is a temptation by producers and studios to put things contemporary, not just because of audience response, but because it's got to be cheaper. Because then you don't have to. Max Allen Collins. Max Allen Collins is the writer. But it's got to be cheaper to shoot something contemporary than having to build whole sets on back lots or do, or if you're shooting on location, change, you know, build new store I mean, look at Batman. Yeah, they had to go to, like, England for Batman to to be able to have that level, to have a studio that big. Rent a whole bunch of classic cars and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) So uh, they... But I feel like Shadow has a, has kind of a, a a couple things going for it, which I feel like they were em, embellishing because since the, this little genre came out and you had these successful uh, superhero or like comic book films that they were trying, you know, you try different things and you try to go different down different avenues. Do you be straight serious? Do you be a little funny? Do you be completely over the uh, overboard? So I think the Shadow kind of ends up coming out and it doesn't do well at all because by that time ninety four. With the digital revolution, CGI, um, you know, you have people already past the point with, uh, you know, with like we talked about last week, McQueen's last two movies, the Tom Horner, Western and Hunter, they don't do well because no one's watching Westerns in 1980 because people are watching Superman, they're watching Star Wars, they're watching Moonraker. So I think here, by the time The Shadow comes out in 1994, Jurassic Park's out, Terminator 2's out, CGI, we're, we're, in, we're into that era of computerized... Yeah. But, I mean, this movie has CGI, but I think, yeah. I think you're right, just like audience tastes... Very quickly. ...had prob- probably moved on. Or waned, bit. yeah. Um, and Power Rangers are huge at that time. So, like, you know, when, so in and, and Ninja Turtles. So it's like, you know... Because uh, there is one more. What what year is that last Ninja Turtles? Back in Lost in Time, or I don't know. You know, I've never seen. I that neither movie. have I. You and I. We <laughs> so said it that. must have been late. We did our. We did a double feature. The, our only double feature, I think, we've ever done, where we did the two Ninja Turtles. We did Ninja Turtles, and then we did Ninja Turtles: uh, Secret of the Ooze we in one like podcast. A, we, we did like a seventy thirty split. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The first one, and then I do sixty forty, but you probably sixty five thirty five. Yeah, of the um, of the two of those movies, but we 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 divulged in that podcast because you're right because probably we we aged out. Uh, we never saw the third when the third. By the time the third one came out, you and I were like in high school, and we were you know. Talking to women and chasing skirts, sk- chasing skirts, and watching Goodfellas, and, and and you know we were in the gangster movies and stuff. So I've yeah I've never seen that movie either. But 
I've seen that like didn't do well either. Of it so have I, and that I made me know. like, I don't know, I gotta watch. I know this they in bring back Ilias Kodias as, as uh, yeah, because what's he doing at Casey that time? Jones. Aside from like the prophecy, you know, and Crash, <laughs> and, and yeah, the original <laughs> Crash, yeah. Uh, so yeah, prophecy. there's a, that's the movie we should do. I know, I love that movie. <laughs> wow, wow, prophecy. You know that mark I, you got above your mouth. I told you shh, when you were born. And Viggo Morgensen's the devil in that. Also, yeah. like remember, like Carlitos oh, Lalling opens with Eric Stoltz. Eric Stoltz is in that too. I shit in diapers, Carlito. <laughs> I got fucking diapers. <laughs> I can't walk. I can't hum, Carlito. <laughs> Wasn't even turned down. I was gonna tell you. Uh, that's a different movie, but that has a connection that here. Has a connection. It's all linked. Yeah, it's well, that, several connections. Actually, more you know, than one. it's interesting now that we're in our we're going into our fifth year of doing the show. This that, is our fourth that people anymore. have a patience for us. Uh, I, I, me, people have a patience for me cutting you off, and also I for do, us just going on tangents. I do plenty of my own cutting off. So <laughs> uh, people, that's only when you're driving. Though. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, and I've said this probably over the last year. It's come up a lot on this show where it's is we got repeat people sleeping over for these things we got oh jesus we keep having my parents are getting pissed your parents <laughs> we keep bringing the same people over uh this episode you know, this movie this episode this movie's directed by russell mulcahy which we did earlier this year we did highlight i think that was the first that kicked open 2018 that might have been our first one for this our year, season yeah. opener but he he directed Highlander. Yeah. So we talk a lot about his history in high in the Highlander episode. Yeah. And he always seems like watching the special features for this movie. He seems he's always like he's drunk. <laughs> you know, he just has that way of talking. Like Keith Richards was like, I so I took him. And it was great. <laughs> in a nutshell, he <laughs> got to start in uh, music videos. Yeah. And then he did a, a horror movie in Australia that I like a lot called Razorback. Yeah. And Highlander, and very, very um, successful and and very seen music videos like his. Oh yeah, big ones. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the the big the bands at the time. Big eighties. I forget now because it was ten months ago. We researched it all, but he he was doing stuff for like I think David Bowie or all the original pioneering Durand, videos. He did a lot of Duran Duran. Duran Duran. When, when it, MTV was Billy just coming Joel's, up. Some of Billy Joel's eighties uh, videos. Yeah. So he was huge, you know, and that's how he got picked to do, yeah, the, after doing the horror movie, The Razorback, he did, um, Hell, um, not Hellraiser, um, Highlander. And, uh, he did, I think, the third, uh, Resident Evil movie. The third, that's the one I might have liked, In the Desert? Yeah. Okay, because I did not like the second one at all. That's the one I liked, too. I liked the first one. I think he did that one. He did, uh. He did my favorite of the seven ripoffs with Christopher Lambert called oh, Resurrection. With the guy that we that the guy that was in Taken from a couple weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. Who's he's he got, plays the friend. Yeah, who's also the bad guy spoiler in Bone Collector, because when you and I went to see the Bone Collector at I go, the that uh, guy's in this movie? Uh, he must we, be the killer. <laughs> there was a period there was a period there with all those like along came a spider, bone collector. Yeah, the problem where, was they were casting good actors in it. So you they were recognizable. I remember we went to I went to a movie I went to the movies with a, a kid that we knew in film school and we were waiting outside of the movie theater and the, there was a poster for maybe along came a spider, one of those yeah, or kiss the girls. Judd, maybe kiss Morgan the girls. Morgan Freeman. Um, I forget the author they're off of. Yeah, one maybe of those Pattersons. And so this is a big spoiler if you haven't seen this movie. I don't even remember the title of the movie, but it's twenty years old. <laughs> but I think it's one of those Ashley Judd movies. And I'm looking at I'm looking at the cast, and then it says and Carrie Elwes. And I was like, oh, Carrie Elwes in that movie? He must be the killer. I think that's kiss the girls. <laughs> and he ended up being yeah. The killer. <laughs> 
It's like, oh, there's no other reason for Karaos to be in the... Oh, wait, Karaos, he's the And killer. you and I went to see uh, uh, Bone The Bone Collector at an old theater in New Haven called The Forest, which they've since t- torn I down. Know. I think that's the only thing we went to see there together. And it was... it was Jesus. I love that. It was huge. It was, yeah, it was, it was one of the last picture houses where it's like one of those where it's like you walk, you know, the... I think the even... When it, you, felt, it felt more like a high school auditorium. Yeah, because it which was is what never, I liked about it. Yeah, it was to, so old school, and it was so weird because it was like when you walk in, there was I think there's even a booth outside they didn't use to buy your ticket. But when you walk in, it's all nicely elegant. You walk up to the the counter, you can buy your ticket, and also get your popcorn. And then when you go into the theater, there's also another stand for popcorn and stuff at the back. Yeah, you know, and then at the back wall they had some really by then outdated like uh, video games or pinball machines, and then the theater, like you said, it's an auditorium because it's just I don't even know if it was raked. I don't think so. It might have been maybe near the end, but it wasn't not um, not even stadium seating. It might have just been kind of like on a slight incline, but it was just yeah, it was just one thing, and then it was just one, one, one screen, and that's where I saw the the notorious Return of the Jedi movie where my dad took me to see Return of the Jedi and then it got too late and he's like, let's go! It <laughs> <laughs> one of the many stories that yeah. ends that way. Let's go! <laughs> During the, when uh, Admiral Ackbar is planning. <laughs> There's a trap! There's a trap! All right, Dan, let's get out of here. But dad, the movie's not over yet. I don't know what's going to happen with the Emperor and then the, the little little Ewokies and what the fuck. So that was the force, but we're getting back uh, off that. But So that guy was in the movie, and he was in Taken last week, and mm-hmm. he's got a good part in, the, in, in uh, Saving Private Ryan that I really like. But th- we were able to tell because they were casting these these people all that, um, that you know, that you could tell that these people were the bad guys. But, but of course, uh, David Kep. Oh, yeah, getting back to the reason why <coughs> we're talking about all that is David Kep is the guy who we talked about earlier in the year. Because he did, he wrote Jurassic Park. Yes. So then also he wrote Carlito's Way. That's what we just. Carlito. That's what we're just doing. Carlito Bragante, man. He also he wrote some sleepover classics, Toy Soldiers. Yes. Phil Hartman's last movie. No, not that movie. (laughs) Sorry. Oh, I'm thinking of that. Small Soldiers. Yeah, okay. I'm talking about uh, Toy Soldiers, the one with uh, the military. uh, Yeah. Yes, I know. Will Wheaton. Yeah. And Sorry. Luke Gossett Jr. Yeah, but <clears throat> uh, Death Becomes Her, Death. which has come up I love a few times. Yeah, my favorite Bruce Willis performance. He also wrote Mission Impossible and Sam Raimi's first Spider-Man movie. And that's interesting too because uh, you, get, you think about the Palma did uh, Carlito's Way, and then the Palma did the first Mission Impossible, mm-hmm. and the Sam Raimi connection to The Shadow, which is today's episode. Yes, <laughs> is that uh, in the <laughs> The Shadow knows. Sam Raimi in the early 90s uh, wanted to do a Shadow movie. Yeah. <clears throat> I think he wanted to do a Batman movie, and he might have been one of the contenders early on. Well, he wanted to do the Shadow <clears throat> in the 80s, and they said no, and then he's like, well, I'm going to do the Dark Man. And then he did so Dark then Man. he created Bar- Dark Man. Yeah. And he's like, well, I can't get the rights to do what I really want to do, so he created his own character, Dark Man. Yeah, no pun intended. Like, And then up and then for years... He was trying to actually do Up proper. until a couple of years ago, you know, maybe 2012, 2014 is when they said... Which is quite recently. Not, yeah, maybe when he said he wasn't going to do it. But he was trying to... He had the right... He finally got the rights because of going on to do Spider-Man and stuff. He finally got the rights to do a Shadow movie. And then they just couldn't get a script together that he was happy with. And I think it fell apart. I don't think it's yeah. in development anymore. Which is a shame because, you know, it's it's it, this is another movie where it seems like there are, you know, huge enthusiasts of it. And then and a good example is that is Raimi because he went and created a whole other character 
which I don't want to call it a ripoff, but it was very much an homage to Dark in Darkman. And yeah, then, I mean, certainly the the look, you know, and, and and certain elements of it. So it's like you would think that, and, and then he got so big doing like you know the stuff in the '90s with the Evil Dead's, and then finally, you know, he, then he did some other like top tier movies like A Simple Plan. Then he got Spider Man. You think they would trust him to do a Darkman? Uh, or no, I'm, I'm sorry, a shadow, but maybe it was just that the property's, you know, it's like Dick Tracy, it's owned by somebody else or whatever, or who the heck knows why it's not, it's in developmental hell. But he's certainly the first and foremost person you think you would want to do it because he has such an affinity for the product. He's not just someone who's, it's a job. Yeah, yeah. You know, you'd want well, to. I just didn't have the clout when he wanted to do it. And then once he has the clout, I guess he just couldn't get the. Supposedly, he did, they just couldn't get a script that he was satisfied with. Which is sad. I mean, that happens so much in Hollywood, we find out now. There could be books. There's a book called, I think, The Best Sci-Fi Movies Never Made. Yeah. But there, there is a book to be made about people who were cast, like, you know, Nicolas Cage cast as Superman, and then they're getting a paycheck. Tim Burton, you know, writing or doing Superman, and, you know, tons of stuff that doesn't get, you know, done, which is sad. Now, this movie... 1994 is The Shadow. Like I said, it was a big... I remember it being a big deal. There was a huge promotion. Yeah, huge marketing campaign. I remember Alec Baldwin was on like every show. I remember being on Oprah and this is talking an, about we it. We can get into this, but it's it's amazing because we're, are we talking about the same Alec Baldwin now that's doing Match Game or you know what I mean? <laughs> but yeah, you know, that's, you know, it's a, the many lies of Alec Baldwin. There was a... I mean, I, I'm a... I'm, I'm, I, I think Alec Baldwin is a great actor. I, yeah. I like him a lot. Uh, I do think... There's something about him there, though, and, and this is just a personal opinion. Uh, I don't think he was ever right for, like, the leading man. man. Even though in his youth he was, he was like, really handsome and, and everything. I just I feel like there's something about him. Like, he's great. His career's great now because he's always, he's like a character actor now. Yeah. And he really excels Well, at he's that. almost playing himself now in movies. You know, like where in the earlier movies he was, he was kind of you. You would get lost, like in a Beetlejuice or something, uh, and then another connection to McQueen. Him, remember, he teamed up. He married Kim Basinger, mm-hmm. and they both did a remake of The Getaway, which is a very loyal remake to that. Even has I think the same beats structure from the original movie script and that's quite good I haven't seen that again in 20 years yeah, but I haven't I, seen that in a long time but Michael Madsen plays like the Al Latari character if I'm saying his last name right and I remember uh, seeing it at the time and believing Baldwin completely as like the, the McQueen stand in his Doc McCoy like oh you know but then at some point near you know in the late mid to late 90s it's like almost he kind of jumped the shark in a way because yeah. he I mean he started getting into politics and, 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 and he had his own radio show and, and and to the odds, he had like some political shows, but I forgot what was going on at the time. Why he did he start doing comedy? Maybe more. I forget what happened that necessitated him to jump the shark. Yeah, as I don't know. I mean, early on, he did a guy. movie really early on with J- uh, Jessica. Not Jessica. Jennifer Jason Lee. Yeah, uh, Miami Blues. Oh, which, it, which is I remember. I remember that being a failure and people talking about. Like I remember it coming out that weekend, and it was like one of the. Examples listening to like Siskel Niebert or the reviewers at the time of like how bad movies are, and I, I to this day have never seen that. Oh, I like that movie. Yeah, I remember him. There's like a shot of him like like naked from the waist up, and and he's got like a crew cut, and he's like on a bed counting money or something from yeah, that movie, maybe yeah. smoking a cigarette. And I remember like that's my memory <laughs> is like people like this movie's so bad, it's it's laughable and it's embarrassing, and it and it was panned at the time, and I was like, well, why? How can it be that bad? <laughs> and when you know? he and he was one of the contenders, I think, to my record collection to play Batman uh, Michael Keaton which yeah. is funny because like out of the two out of the two male leads in Beetlejuice 
You would think yeah. Michael Keaton was the <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> You'd think they'd get cast as Bruce Wayne. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but my point is he, there was this huge hype for this movie. I mean, it yeah. was a big studio movie. It was, you know, Warner Brothers had had, uh, had, had Batman. Yeah. Disney had had The Rocketeer and... Was Dick, Dick Tracy was Disney or like an offshoot of Disney? It was Touchstone, but it was it was they were they was Disney up until Madonna started just like you know laying herself all over the place <laughs> and they're like holy shit you could see nipple <clears throat> we're gonna it's like um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit same thing Touchstone yeah. but it was just because Jessica Rabbit's laying herself all over the place they're like, <laughs> <laughs> like Disney's like winking at you so, so yeah. the universe was Universal's kind of stab at trying to do like a pulpy superhero comic book movie and who did Superman I should know that <laughs> I would imagine it's is it Warner or, or is it Warner I don't remember I don't I don't remember you know I but mean, it, I know they eventually oh I know Warner Brothers eventually owned DC so yeah, I, yeah but when that came out I don't know but I, I feel like it was Warner Brothers I forget who it was if it was like Robert Evans connected or something like but that. it was you know we were kids we were you know we were getting a little long in the tooth but you know you and I are we held in are, are you know young at heart you know <laughs> and that's also around the time that last action hero came out which is kind of self mocking that genre because that's the early 90s is the end of that 80s era of insane action films that Schwarzenegger and, and you know you have like you know in the 90 Demolition Man and all those yeah. you know up until like even Eraser you know so that genre was kind of dying so it's like it's, but it's, this is I wouldn't put this in the no I wouldn't either but, it, you, but you're starting to get that like with Last Action or that self-mock deprecating mockery so I think it's hard when you're having people poking fun at the action genre that kind of thing and then you know you're doing like a, a period piece that's coming out at the same time and then you all of a sudden you have this other elephant in the room with CGI and Jurassic Park and Terminator 2 yeah you know and people like you know but I remember seeing this at the movies and kind of being I didn't own the toys I think by that point maybe I was a little too old to buy new toys I was just rocking my old toys I had a couple of them <laughs> I, 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 didn't, I didn't have any of the toys but I remember coming out I remember being a big deal I remember being into it I remember going to see it uh, it was certainly marketed towards a child audience. Yeah, like Batman certainly was. I mean, I think Batman is a little more seriouser, but this was certainly going for that. Like you're saying with toys and. Did you see it at the movies? Uh, I don't think I did. I don't recall, which probably means I didn't. Because I mean, and then uh, no, I don't think I saw it at the theater. So I, I think I've seen. I saw it when it came on video, and then. I, I by the time I got a couple of the toys, it was because they were like on liquidation, you know, like you know the clearance bin. So I got one or two of them because they look cool. Same thing with Lax Action Hero because I can play along with my GI Joes or whatever, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. or some of the odd toys. So because I feel like this came and went so quick, and I don't. I'm trying to think of like at the time what we were, what I was into because this was also the time of when comic books were like in full swing and almost at the top of their pinnacle when you're collecting like you know Batman is when he gets his back broken by yeah, Bane Superman Superman's dying killed, yeah. uh, there's five different covers for like the new X-Men or X-Force or Spider-Man you know so you're going you know six ways from Sunday I was big in the Punisher at the time so maybe um, maybe this came and went for me so quickly because I was my head was going in all different directions you know when you watch it now, I mean, I think both of us have revisited this movie within the last 10 years. Ye- I think I remember you saying I mu- yeah. that you might have watched it, and I watched it not too long ago. 
But I don't. I didn't know it as nearly as much as I knew Dick Tracy, Rocketeer. Certainly not Batman. Sure, yeah, yeah. you know me either. But yeah. I mean, I didn't know. I never knew Dick Tracy as much as you did. But definitely Rocketeer, yeah. Batman. Uh, I guess my point is, <clears throat> you know, I, I think we've had this discussion privately, not now, but previously, like that that this movie may not hold up. We were worried as strongly as as, the as things like the Rocketeer and yeah. Batman did, and I think that was one of our hesitations and why we didn't do it last year and why we were hesitant not to do it this year. Also, we didn't have such a connection to the property as much of it as, the as other stuff, of the you know? 1994 movie, and that's nothing to take away from the Shadow because <clears> I think <throat> it's such an amazing, you know, property in itself. The character. Well, yeah, I mean, I always knew that it would be like an interesting episode to do because I think both of us have a bit of an affinity for. Definitely, like the radio show, like not the shadow, not spe- maybe not specifically the shadow radio shows, but the era of old time radio and pulp novels and serialized kind of hero stories and stuff. So it's definitely like in our wheelhouse. Yeah. But to do this movie, I think there was the hesitation that like this movie was not as big for us as kids, <clears throat> or it was not as big for us when we were kids as the other ones we've done. And maybe this movie doesn't hold up quite as well as some of the other ones do. So when we watch it, t- when we watch it tonight, you know, we watch things trying to revisit it with the. You know, we say we try to. I try to put on the glasses of like watching it for the first time again. Yeah, or, I take, I dust my nostalgia cap <laughs> off and put it on, or watch it like we're trying <clears throat> to remind, remember what it was like to be a kid and watch it. And this movie does have a feel, and I think it's something that I brought up in in our Dick Tracy podcast, which is like it feels very claustrophobic to me. And I think it's because the vast majority of it is shot on studio backlots. And I think it's also set limitations where, for me, uh, twofold, say, if we take Dick Tracy, like, Dick Tracy doesn't feel claustrophobic to me because you have those gorgeous matte paintings that extend the world. Yeah. So, you know, so when I'm watching it as a kid, to me, I can't see the separation of live action uh, set to the, you know, uh, matte matte painting background. Um, Also... Dick Tracy Dick Tracy's kind of takes itself seriously I think but it's a little silly mm-hmm. because how how they did it where this movie almost like the Batman TV show not not as campy but like Batman TV show took itself really seriously yeah. but it was like the world of it and what was it's, going on yeah, was it's kind camp. of silly when in Dick Tracy to me like they they, I guess they kind of went that way because they're going for kids. They didn't go super dark to alienate kids, which I think yeah. they could have and could have been awesome. But I think all of like the bad guys and the you know the big ex- elaborate makeup. Yeah, it's very you know it, it's a world that is a bit campy. Yeah, uh, but with this movie, they try to go for there's a level of comedy. Yeah, in it, it's a little more tongue in cheek. Yeah, which, which Dick Tracy wasn't like Dick Tracy. Dick Tracy, the way they went, it inherently brings that as baggage. Where this movie, also like Dick Tracy, didn't need to go that way, but this is a, a, a an avenue that they decided to go down. And I think I tried to make that point earlier by saying, like, when you're trying to do different things in this sub sub genre, yeah. they decided to make it, yeah, like a little tongue in cheek with, you know, Tim Curry being very funny or just, you know, and even, you know, uh, from what I from the rest of this podcast going on, and I'm in no way making fun of this movie or anything like that. I'm just talking about how, you know, just talking about looking back at it now and it holding up and all that. Like, I find uh, uh, 
Alec Baldwin's uh, performance almost like he's channeling like Shatner kind of. You know, he's <laughs> yeah. like just how he's taught, you know, and, and it works perfectly well at the time. And, you know, now we look back on it, maybe it wasn't tongue-in-cheek when it was, you know, it's maybe, I feel this lends itself more to Batman 66 than, say, Dick Tracy does, where it's like, you know, Dick Tra- Batman 66 at all didn't think it was tongue-in-cheek, but it's, 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 it's the escapism, and people, I think, overnight realized that they snapped out of it, and they're like, holy fuck, what the fuck have we been doing? <laughs> like, they woke up with a hangover, you know, <clears throat> we, they have all these movies. Yeah, well, you know, the thing with Dick Tracy for me was, I remember when we did, when we did it on the show... I get your point. I mean, because it, it's beautifully constructed, but it's also like it, the world. I remember the world feeling so empty because oh, they're the only people around. Yeah. It's like it's just like they never an, populate an empty, the... like an empty New York City. Yeah, uh, this movie, on the other hand, has this feel of well, there's a know, lot of people. It's, it's funny. It's the antithesis because there's a lot of people around. They have a lot of people walking about and all yeah. that. But but it seems so. It is kind of constructed. Like you want to have a couple more long shots, you know. But then. There's a lot of stuff they do that I really enjoy in this. And I don't, and you know what? It's like I don't even necessarily find that to be a bad thing when I say that it feels a little claustrophobic. There is something about having that feel of it being a set that is very nostalgic. You know, the the look of the, you know, it's like when you go to MGM Studio, well, at least it used to be called the MGM Studios at Disney World. Yeah. <laughs> and you walk in on the, on the New York City like Hollywood back. Studios, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But there's, and I've been to many of the tours, uh, Hollywood tours for the studios in California. And there is like, there's this magic of filmmaking, of walking around these. Which is interesting because then you take a movie like Who Framed Roger Rabbit from 88. I used to keep saying 87, 88, but that movie's shot, for the most part, they found actual locations. They're yeah. on city streets. They're well, it on, totally you know, makes a big, so, it makes a yeah. big difference. I mean, because even the the shots in Batman, you know, Batman feels very enclosed, and, and that's partially because of the idea that we talked about, because, you know, of course, we're contractually obligated uh, by... <laughs> To talk about urban infrastructure. Yes. The Robert Moses Foundation. <laughs> a longtime supporter for standing kids programming. We talk about in that one how they were like throwing, you know, city planning out the window. What it would it be like if just like there was no zoning and they just threw up. And that was their interpretation of, of Gotham City. Yeah. And so like it, it kind of purposely has this. But there's stuff where, you know, the scene where... Uh, the Joker, there, I remember it's on the steps and, and maybe there's a big, it's, it's outdoors and yeah. Bruce Wayne's sitting there and standing there. And, oh, and he the, kills the guy in the press conference and throws the pen at him. Pen's behind him in the store. And it's outdoors, but they cut to a long shot. It feels shot. much bigger, you yeah. know, like it opens it up. It's good. Well, it, it, well, it gives you some breathing they room. Went to, they went to England to, I forget what studio it is there. Um, uh, is it uh, S. S, S tree what the, what the hell the hell pine studio maybe pinewood but they they found the biggest studio in the world that had a back lot that big so that they would have that vast because they figured they have to create all that so at the same time batman feels yeah a little more open than this does and like i said i'm not i and it's a matte painting anton first you know production yeah. design and all that kind of shit and there's definitely that going on you know the time they keep on cutting to times square and there's definitely like this matte painting that oh this that's we can get to is fucking beautiful it's my bread and butter now the other thing, the while I'm watching this because I didn't really even pay attention to the opening credits because you know we were 
was eating. We were getting settled. We were cracking open the Mega Joe Cola. I was I was putting the lid back on the bucket of pizza. I was eating my, uh, <laughs> my pizza bagels and Elios. Um, I was shocked at the end of the movie to see that Jerry Goldsmith did the score because Jerry, yeah, I saw him at the beginning because Jerry Goldsmith is one of the, like the great, if not like the greatest film score. Can, Film score composer of all time, from the standpoint of film score. Composers. Yeah, yeah. Of now course. that I know a lot of film score composers, because the they all love Jerry Goldsmith, and Jerry Goldsmith scored so many yeah. movies. Um, I mean, it's it's logical that they would have him come in to do it, you know, because of the property so immense. But I didn't even, you know, like Batman has a theme. Well, that's what I was. Superman go- has a theme. What I was gonna say is like Dick Tracy has a theme. This. Sadly, and you know, <laughs> unfortunately, some of this cast is turning out like we're shitting on this movie, and I, I totally don't mean it no, to be. No, no. Um, we haven't got to the meat and potatoes <laughs> yet. We're still, <laughs> we're still eating the bread. But my point is, what, I, what I'm getting at is the the music felt kind of generic to me in this. Yeah. And I kind of feel like had, you know, imagine this movie, had Batman not come out, had, had Batman, Batman not been like so forced into our consciousness and us being not so familiar with it. But imagine this movie with Danny Elfman's score oh, for Batman. It would have been Dick Tracy. <laughs> yeah, like it would have been yeah. so much I, more. But I, you know, I think it go, gets down to budget restriction. Like you think about Who Framed Roger Rabbit, because it's it's helmed by Steven Spielberg and Robert Zemeckis, they're going to get whatever the hell they want. And they did. And they had Warner, so much so they had Warner Disney do a joint. Yeah. First time and the and last time that's ever happened. Batman, uh, I, I don't know what the example is there for that, but. Tim Burton was able to expertly use that budget to create something huge. Dick Tracy, because it was Warren Beatty, everybody uh, under the sun was in it. They got the budget they needed, and then they got it. Uh, when you get to the even so, two with the Rocketeer, you know, Rocketeer is in California, so you can have a, a very minimal Disney, sets. You know. It's Disney. They they they've constructed it. And at the end, you're at Griffith Park Observatory. Well, that's the thing is, you know, it you looks can, like the 30s. You Art compare Deco. this to you can sorry to interrupt you, but you yeah. compare this to Rocketeer. That is so open. It's like the airfields, and you know, so much of that movie is out in the open. Where this is thirty, so much breathing room. Like that movie York. is so grandiose. Yeah. Whereas this movie is, you know, it's urban, so it's going to be a little more claustrophobic. Period. Anyway. Urban. You know, it's th- it's late thirties urban. So I think when you get to this movie, there probably there's shitloads of budgetary restrictions. Um, you know, this isn't. Maybe it's not considered on the tier level as Batman or Dick Tracy. Yeah. But so, even I think Rocketeer is a good comparison. Yeah. That's a property that wasn't popular, as popular as things like Batman. The way The Shadow, by 1994, wasn't as popular for kids. Which is a shame. These properties, you know, I forget. There's another example. But yet, good. the score for The Rocketeer is f- fantastic. It was used... In numerous trailers, who does the score? Commercials. I want to say it's Horner. Oh, you're right. Maybe yeah, but I could be wrong. And I'm trying to think of. I don't. I bet you if I heard the score, the the theme, I'd know it. But yeah, I can't. Yeah, yeah. Like Dick Tracy, Batman, Super. Of course, Superman. Like Star Trek. You know these as soon as you think of them. I mean, it's a very different <clears> world <throat> of like Batman. You know. Yeah. So it doesn't have that ominous darkness yeah. and that score it's a much more disney i mean rocketeer is a disney movie yeah, you yeah, know yeah. so it feels like a disney movie yeah, of course uh but just yeah i mean i feel like you know point out things that kind of 
you know, maybe stuck with me that might seem kind of negative up front so we can get past them and then celebrate this movie. Yeah. But I do remember as we're watching the movie tonight, I was like, man, like if this movie just had not not even a better score, but like you said, like a more specific theme or something that it was like something it needed something. Well, you said that they, I, which I didn't remember, they had a music video. Does that mean it was on MTV? Well, there was a music video for the song at the end, during yeah. the credits, Original Sin, uh, sung by a singer that I don't know named Taylor Dane, but I would imagine... Is that her in the club at the beginning singing to? I don't know. Okay. Because I don't know who she is. Yeah, neither do I, but usually sometimes they'll do that little, you know... But it's funny when that song comes on, It one, that song feels, to me anyway, so out of place. Which one? The credit sequence? Yeah. The yeah. general original set. It just feels like they just they tacked on a song to go to popularize the movie. It's like, you know... But and, even more so because... <laughs> and But it's funny because as I'm watching, as we're watching the end credits, I'm thinking like... Man, this sounds like a meatloaf song. Yeah. Like, I wonder if Jim Steinman wrote this. And then, sure enough, Jim Steinman did write oh, this. Oh, it had that. It really was. <laughs> I'll do anything <laughs> the for The guy love. that wrote all those meatloaf but songs. But I won't do that. And wrote, uh, turn around. Everyone I go and the music. And I was like, this sounds exactly like Jim Steinman. And sure enough, it was, in fact, written by Jim Steinman. Well, it's interesting because you think about, like, U2 or um, even Seal. They have such iconic songs for Batman, uh, uh, Batman, what's the Batman? Bat- Forever. Batman Forever, but they don't seem out of place to me. They're attached to that because you were coming off the heels of Batman Returns. And Batman and Batman Returns, well, Batman had Prince. They had an entire soundtrack with the Bat Dance and all that. Batman Returns, I don't remember having nothing necessarily connected to it, like pop-wise. I don't remember that But then either. Batman Forever, you had Seal doing Kiss from a Rose, which was a great ballad, which is still great today. And then you had... Was it Kiss Me, Thrill Me, Kill Me, which is the U2 song, which is really good. So they kind of fit where you're right. At the end of this, they just throw like, you know, you get that with a lot of 80s, you know, you have like an Elton John show up, a song show up, or you have like a Clapton song show up or something that's just like, oh, okay, you know, you're there, you know. So, but it's just, it seems kind of out of place because this is a period movie, maybe. Yeah, I think so. You know, so. Um, you know, I'd be weird, like, be like a rocketeer. You suddenly it's have also, like, you, you know, know, it's funny because it has this, that, that song, because Jim Simon has a very, uh, a big, but also, like, kind of melodramatic, maybe overly dramatic. The gentleman who does feel, meatloaf who stuff? Wrote, yeah, who wrote that stuff. It's He's got a very specific feel, but it is very kind of, you know, it's hard to explain, but it be, but because we did earlier this year, we did the color of night. Yeah, the like, Bruce Willis it remind, uh, like erotica. that song feels like it would have fit perfectly, so perfectly. Yeah, in that it's movie. like a lost cut. <laughs> they, they they weren't gonna they used it in you know because the score to that movie is so kind of melodramatic and a little bit over like a little bit extreme for for what for what that movie is. That's like we learned. Uh, so, I see. I don't remember anything anymore. People are gonna laugh, but we learned there was a song written for like Cobra, and we learned that there was a song written for Cobra, and then they unused it, and then it was in something else we did. Yeah, and I was like, "Holy crap!" Like this was this was oh maybe it was was it Commando Michael DeBar's um with with um uh, uh power of not power of love with um <laughs> the power no but but no no that's so you get me confused who who is um uh, sorry folks what's the guy it's well, a hold late on. night it's a yeah, late it's really, night Robert Palmer was the singer of 
the big band, huge. That with all like the guy from Duran Duran came to it. Power Station, Power Station. Yeah. And then he didn't tour with them, and then instead they gra- grabbed Michael DeBar, who we know and love from MacGyver as Murdoch. And but Twitter. In <laughs> Twitter, I, I'm a friend with him on Twitter. Uh, he's a friend of the show as well as on Twitter. But then he saw he sang that song, uh, the f- f- we. Dance. Fight for Love, the one at the end of Commando. Mm-hmm. Uh, awesome fucking song, and he only performed live with them at Live Aid, but I feel like maybe that song was something that maybe. was done for Commando. Might, there also might have been something from Over the Top, maybe? It could have been, yeah, maybe it was something for Over the Top. One wave, one how? <laughs> anyway. My love. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> now suddenly I'm singing, we're whacked out tonight. <laughs> Uh, uh, we fight for love. Like we fight for love. That's it. Michael DeBar. Go check that out. Michael like DeBar's We Fight for Love. We're running off the rails like a crazy train. Over yeah. <laughs> That's great Jesus. cast, da-na, though. Da-na. Okay. Al Baldwin. Yeah, we're getting back onto the movie. So that, we, we've, we've talked about the problems we thought the movie had. And then also, do you think that contributed to the movie not doing well when it came I out? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> You know, the other funny thing is because after we watched the movie, we watched the DB, the Blu-ray special features. Yeah. I went mic- microwave some pizza. And I think it's so funny that the whole, like, so much of the special features are, are, you know, like, pointed at, you know, uh, I forgot how to talk. Some of the special features are talking about, like, what a great script it was. Oh, what's his faces, yeah. The, what a great script David kept s- wrote for this. And he was coming off of, he had like five, he had Carlito's Way, Jurassic Park, he had uh, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, he, Death Becomes, or he had, like he was, this guy was cranking him out. And I, I, I didn't think the script was the, like anything special. <laughs> you know, I, I think <laughs> you it, know, it was fine, I don't think it was a bad script. I bet you if But you, it's funny that, you know, there, there was something else we <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't. I think shows, you know. Not know what we're talking about. There was something else. There was a show we did recently where they talked about how it was the best. Some actor was talking about it was the best script he ever read. Oh, that it was. Um, that wasn't Sorcerer. That was McQueen for Sorcerer. We yeah, and then he, and then we were like, really, it was the best script you ever read. Um, I yeah. I, that <laughs> rings a bell too. Somebody, we can't drink before these. Is what the problem is. is once we drink, we're all fucking. Off. Uh, but the, the I I wonder I if they. It's a fine. It's a fine. Well, script. Maybe they're looking at it because you're looking at he has an 80 or 60 year old property that he has to come and condense into an hour and a half movie. Yeah. Maybe I mean, you there's know, a lot of it. There's a know, lot of and it's also the history a, of radio and pulp. It's a bit tongue in cheek. Which, which I wonder might, if that was a, const, a conscious decision. Well, they say that once Alec he they say he wrote it with Alec Baldwin in mind. And, but once Alec Baldwin was on set and they were like doing rehearsals and their script readings, like he then would do rewrites that would kind of incorporate some of the humor that Alec Baldwin was bringing to it. But there's a big emphasis on, oh, I know, or, you know, like the shadow knows is like. You know, it's keep. I feel like there's a comic, well, even there's a comically repetitive. You have thing of Alec Baldwin, like, oh, I know. You have, I the, know. You have even the the comic genius of Jonathan Winters in here, playing a very minor role as the Commissioner Gordon. That's kind of in, in every single thing he's doing is very much like um, completely tongue in cheek. You know, I mean, he's doing some very subtle comedy there, uh, and I don't think anybody from our Nowadays, may remember John of the Winters of how much of a pioneer he was in the comedy world, but it's like he seems like you know there's a lot of people doing like Tim Curry, you know, really egging it, hamming it up. So there must there must have even I never knew who Ian McKellen really was. I hadn't seen The Keep up until that time, and he comes out. Ian McKellen does this. He does um, 
uh, last action hero around the same time. He plays Death at the end that comes out of the Seventh mm-hmm. Seal movie. So I didn't really His know. Apt he, pupil wasn't that around this time. No, that's a little. I think I feel later. like it's like ninety six or ninety seven because I I loved him in that. But it's like you know, or I don't rem- I didn't remember who played the generic scientist in this movie until I'm like, oh, that's Ian McKellen doing that. And even him, he's playing like a kind of like a, 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 a you know, it's almost like a you know, like a, a cardboard cutout of what this character is, you know what I mean? And uh, so it's, it's it's just interesting. It's like maybe it's what they're getting handed script-wise. Is this the first appearance of Tim Curry on the show? No, because we did Clue earlier this year. Oh, yeah, Clue. How, yeah. how could I forget? Yeah, we did Clue. And uh, what? And then uh, we can get into his perf- – I want to – it's maybe too early, but I want to get into a little of what he's doing in this movie later. But uh, this might be the first appearance of Penelope, Penelope Ann Miller. She may be, and I could be mistaken, but she may be the friend in the bus station of baby. Oh, she is. You're right. Babysitting. Yeah, she is. So she's not. That's not her. She's yeah. She's stuck. That's the whole emphasis of them going out, which we we've covered last year. Of course, James Hong. Uh, yeah, yeah. Love who, him to death. Who uh, is? I have a theory is in maybe more movies than any. Buddy ever, <laughs> yeah, he is the gentleman who's at the very beginning of this movie, but he's in he's in Die Hard, also he's in with Big Trouble in China, China, he's in Lethal Weapon, which no, no, that's Ali Young. Oh, I'm sorry, that's completely racist. Who's also in? That's what I thought. This. Yes, both both of them are in Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, James Hong is you know dates back to. Oh, you're talking Ch- about what's his face? I, in, I, I thought we not put on this uh, to get it, Mister. But <laughs> he's in. Uh, yeah, he's in tons of stuff. He's in. Chinatown. Yeah. He's in everything, every movie that I ever needed. He's almost like Key Luke, because I almost thought Key Luke, I thought that was at the beginning when Alec Baldwin is talking to the young kid with the voiceover, I thought that was Key Luke's voice, which I'm probably mistaken. Yeah. But it sounded very much like Key Luke, who we see show up in Gremlins as an older man, but he's he's going back to number one son in the Charlie Chan with Warner Owens in the 30s. Uh, But it it opens with James Hong and and Ali Young, which is... um, which is interesting because you know what this movie is a little bit akin, I think, to Big Trouble in Little China <laughs> in some ways. And it's also like you know you look at we've we've already established maybe last week or two weeks ago that we're not the biggest fans of Christopher Nolan because yeah. we we're talking about Dunkirk and stuff. Maybe that was last week's with McQueen. Uh, with Batman Begins, uh, you see a lot of that them taking you know the mythol- the whole segment of that movie is kind of like this. Yeah, I was you know I mean? was thinking that too. Batman Begins has a lot. It's like they stole all that. From. Yeah, which is the, the whole Raja Ghoul stuff. I mean, I know the the Raja Ghoul and the Legion of Shadows yeah. and all that stuff is in the comic books. Yeah, but feel wise. But it all gets back to Batman's is a direct, not a ripoff, but Batman's a whole homage to the Shadow, which we can get into. Uh, Peter Boyle. Uh, yeah, we, who we I don't think he's been on the... Uh, we just brought up the Friends of Eddie Coyle, the Friends of Peter Boyle, last week again. <laughs> but I don't think Peter Boyle's been on the show before. Uh, driving a cab like he does in Taxi Driver. And uh, Sab Shimono, who is the uh, Asian like uh, NYU professor that he saves at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. He's in a lot of stuff, but he's in a movie that I hold very uh, near and dear to my heart, Gung Ho with Michael Keaton, yeah. directed by Ron Howard. And he's also got that line, uh, hey, that's catchy. And that was huge. That was something I remember that was ingrained from the trailer. Yeah. Back when trailers, you know, that was, it's kind of like I've never seen Johnny Johnny Mnemonic from when yeah, it came he, out. But I, I, and I, it's so much on that I kind of want to go back and revisit it because I have, I have this newfound respect for Keanu Reeves. But- 
I remember that line like, you can't shoot me. Not in the head. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like oh, you know, but it's like, it's you know. So, yes, he's been in a, a, a crap ton of movies. And I feel like he's a zombie. Is he a zombie in, um, that might not be him. And uh, not of the creeps. <laughs> he's not the janitor. Mm, I don't think so. Yeah. And John Lone, who uh, was in a lot of things at that time. He was more of a, in serious movies. He was in Last Emperor, I think. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, if, he's in David Cronenberg's uh, Butterfly. Oh, he put Rene Gallimard. Yeah, he's but Jeremy he, Irons is opposite. But he's will always my favorite role of his will always be in the movie The Hunted, uh, or is it just Hunted? The Christopher Lambert movie, not the. Uh, I was going to say the Tommy Lee Jones, <laughs> Felicia the Terror movie, Hunted. One of the many Christopher Lambert with a samurai sword movies. Um, it also, but this movie, another thing too, it seems like kind of like a Dick Tracy where they got people. There's so many binary characters that just have like they're thrown in, and you're like, oh look who like the two security guards that are guarding maybe Ian McKellen. Like the the tall guy is the dude from um, Parker Lewis. Pa- can't lose. Yeah, and I think he's also on uh, maybe Doogie Howser. I thought I thought he was the guy, the bully that, and then becomes friends. That also maybe goes to ER or something, or maybe he's Doogie Howe. I, I feel he I see. The, he's also I think he's been on the show before. I think we've talked about this guy before. As, yeah, and then the other guy, the other he's another guy, which I don't know his name. The the redhead guy, he's yeah, been he's in a ton of stuff. He was in Seinfeld. Yeah, yeah. People will know his face. Um, the, the, the guy who plays the security guard. Oh, at the beginning, I think he was on. I think he plays the cook on Enterprise. Okay. And that's uh, the security guard at the museum. Either at the Enterprise or I might be getting that mistaken with Voyager. It might be Voyager. I can't remember. And, and then but he was—I think he was on Benson. He was in a lot of stuff too. That then, guy. then there's the guy in in the museum. There's the the head museum person who we know all the time. But then his assistant with the glasses is the father from Alf. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, and then who has a fucked up story. Does he? That guy uh, in real life. Something about involves drugs and. Sex. Seriously. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know it off the top of my oh, head. Oh, that's kind of, that's Saturday Night <laughs> Movies. <laughs> you're going to have to say my name right. Saturday Night <laughs> Movies Sleepover Material. You guys are going to have to look that up on your own. Alf's father. Uh, maybe we'll put a link in the cast if we can't find a lot of stuff. But it seemed, and then I said Jonathan Winters. Uh, we had uh, Tim Curry. Who else? There's, there's a, I feel there's a whole bunch more of people. Oh, the guy, the, you know, the guy, the cab driver. Who? What's his face? Tells the driver. Oh you know, yeah, 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 he's, he's in. Um, he's on a ton of stuff, and I, I feel like he was in something really very that recently. Very, you know, it's very all all over. I apologize. Yeah, to you, the listener. Um, let's get back on track now. <laughs> so we're a little scattered. We're today. A li- yeah, we're a little. F- well, you know, flustered. I think part of it is that this is, and and we really need to get moving on this because this is probably the most, the world of the shadow, not. You know, not the fictional world, but like the real life world of the shadow and its origin and everything that character has appeared in. It's it's massive and it is scattered because it's such a weird pulpery of uh, history. You know, well, different different historical things because because the character was invented in, in like in, the, in like nineteen thirty, but his but that character changed over time. And the role of that character in the shows, in the radio show that it originated in, changed. Uh, so I think it's you know we want to focus on the movie, but it's, there's this big other history that we can't even 
We we're have, only going to peel the fir- couple first couple of layers off. Yeah, we'll, of. yeah, we'll try to do like a concise run on it. But I mean, just to talk about the the the, uh, the influence where he directly influenced Batman. He, I mean, even to like recently, Darkwing Duck is a direct link to him. It's like there's so many, um, you know, this this character, and I feel, and it's kind of like sad. I mean, maybe we've brought this up on. Batman or Rocketeer where you have like he doesn't really get his shake I mean he did get his shake he got a 1994 big budget movie uh, that was you know A-list it wasn't like a B movie but it's like you know for the people I'm sure there's worse movies out there as I think about it that like people like damn it that's the only time I ever saw my my character come out and it was a terrible movie like Punisher (laughs) or whatever (laughs) but it's like because the shadow's been around for so long to think about like uh, you know I think the radio show ran for like 22 years or something on radio to like 54 uh the the gentleman who was um writing it uh, what's his name uh gibson yeah uh he wrote like what 300 and something odd novels well uh, it's it, you know he wrote 285 but like 300 something odd novels came out like proper novels yeah. he's and, written he wrote uh 325 novels came out and then also Three month, three annuals. So yeah. it's really like three hundred and twenty-eight of those three hundred and twenty-eight mo- uh, novels. We're talking about like novels. Yeah, William B. Not, Gibson. We're talking not about, short yeah. stories. He wrote two hundred and eighty-three of those, I think. Yeah, and they two hundred eighty-two of the regular novels, and I think he might have written one of the annuals. He, which is a culmination of, and he was they were, he was doing it twice a month. See, this is the th- and he's and, writing how many? What is it? How many words? I forget how much how many words. I don't were. know how many words per novel, but it's somewhere in a culmination of like he, of all the no, all the shadow stuff that he wrote. It, it's something like he wrote uh, somewhere around fifteen million words, which is more words written on a one by one author on a specific topic than any other author in history. <laughs> yeah, and this guy he was cranking it out, and it seems like in that era, two novels a month. Yeah, Dion. It took you 15 years to get your first. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, I, well, Imagine luckily, if you were doing that every two weeks. Uh, luckily, the, well, my problem was it was just getting someone to see it. If, if, if the fir- 15 years ago, if someone was like, "It's great," now I'll do sequels. This guy was doing sequels. This, it, it seems like of the era, this was much more uh, because it, it's it's like Tim Pan Alley, where it's like it's a job. So you have to get something done by a certain time, either getting installments done and stuff. And there's a style of writing where it's quick. You're used to like newspaper writing. Uh, Earl Stanley Gardner, who wrote Perry Mason, he was a lawyer by trade. This guy, and he, uh, you know, practiced law regularly in in, in a in a regular um, uh, partnership with other lawyers or whatever the firm was called. And then on the side, he'd go to his secretary. And I forget what the setup was, but he would go out with the secretary and he would dictate the latest Perry Mason story and she'd write it down and that would be it. And he would do that, I don't know how many times a week. And, you know, and that's how his method was to write Perry Mason's. So, uh, you know, and it's like there's people back then like Sax Romer who wrote Fu Manchu. uh, uh, What's his name? The guy who wrote Tarzan, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, this guy, um, uh, uh, Walter B. Gibson. Like these people... Especially Gibson here, where we're saying, like, he he started to say, well, he just started living and breathing it, where I can kind of understand that, where you're always looking for inspiration and you have a, a method of getting... It's kind of like comic book. You think of guys like comic strip, like um, 
maybe Chester Gould for Dick Tracy, but like Jim Davis who does Garfield or uh, Schultz who did Peanuts, where you have a deadline, you have to come up with something every week or every day, yeah. so you have to supply Stan Lee or whoever was doing the three things for Spider-Man when Spider-Man was in newspapers. It's like, you know, you get used to writing. Like I was thinking with Jim Davis, like Jim Davis has been doing Garfield for since, what, the late 70s, and you think every week... I think it's just him. He's you have to come up with a new gag. Yeah, you know, and that gets kind of like you're going to lose your mind at some point. But like this guy here, um, Walter P. Gibson, you start. He almost becomes the shadow, where he's getting. They said there's a stat like he was getting paid so much money uh, for his stories at the time that he he would have been able to buy a new car once a month in cash and still live comfortably when he was when he, this was they were when he was cranking these out it was the depression and it was in the depression too so it was, it was the great yeah. depression so it's like you know good money if you good work if you can get it he rented an, uh, a really fancy uh, expensive ass apartment like on like you know overlooking central park you know uh, this penthouse where he would do his writing and he you know he would get his shit done he didn't seem to me like he had like ghost writers or stuff like he was doing it himself for the most part he had other people, guest guys who wrote for like Doc Savage and stuff to try to yeah. lay off the burden, but, but I also, he never I seemed overwhelmed. Even, I also don't even know if that was him, his choice. I well, mean, yeah, because he was writing under the pseudonym Maxwell Grant, the pen name they gave. Because in the old days, too, a lot of these companies didn't want to be able to... They, they were, Some of them were wary. If you signed, the author signed their own name, the author then later could maybe have a, a, a case if, you, if they fire the author, he can take the product with him. So a lot of times in these early days of pulp, they would, ha they would give somebody a pen name. So uh, Walter P. Gibson, he was writing under the pen name Maxwell Grant, and Maxwell Grant was publishing The Shadow so that if Gibson gets sick, you can have Blake come in and write a story and it would still get published under, you know, under yeah, yeah. Maxwell Grant. So I mean, Grant. I don't even know if like, he was bringing in other writers. Yeah. Just that the publishing... It's an interesting history. I mean, we kind of we jump. We kind of skipped a little yeah, bit. Yeah, let's go back and try to get to the to the to the meat and potatoes and go through uh, chronologically. So um, back in the day, picture a time before the internet and television, <laughs> where really your only source of home entertainment uh, were books, reading was was reading. Or the radio. Yeah. I mean, phonographs are still in their infancy, so you can get like a phonograph, but phonographs are basically just music. Yeah. You know, people at this time, this early enough, people weren't either, haven't mastered vocalization really over music amplification. So you may get like, uh, uh, what's his face? Uh, um, um, this is really a shitty episode because I can't think of anybody. <laughs> What's his name? A guy like Caruso, Enrico Caruso, who you had records of him, and it was, you know, without amplification, he's just singing into an opera hall. Where So basically, you'd have just very simple microphones were only used to record music, very rudimentary. So they hadn't really getting the idea of, of using, you know, a, a vocalist in front of a band until like probably the mid-30s. So radio comes about, and radio is using microphones, of course, but radio is only using them to record the sound to send it out to people. So really at the time, like Blake's saying, you, you would read. You had the dime store novels, you know, going back to, like, the Western era, but then when you're getting into the 20th century, you know, the, the pictures or the movies or uh, that they're very much at their infancy, but that's probably maybe a luxury if you or the Nickelodeons where you can go to, like, a, a place and spend like a nickel or a penny to watch like a horse run around or a, uh, an elephant get electrocuted or a couple kiss you know so 
if you're you know if you're working and you have no money the only money you're having to, to spend is to either to for shelter or to eat you get these magazines off the off the newsstands or or a newspaper some some sort of digestible entertainment you need something because yeah. other people couldn't afford you can't afford a radio so i mean you know? it was a time when you know there was a lot of literature being produced yeah and so there were all these like genres these th- these magazines and all these books and stuff can, Romance. That, that were called that were considered pulp partially because of the what the paper that the it was a cheap paper that they were like using wood, to yeah. produce them made out of some kind of wood pulp uh, and then there was also a lot of them were violent and they so like this was beaten to a pulp was also kind of uh, you know, a little innuendo that was that was being used. But so there was all these different magazines, all kinds of mystery, and also this is, you know, comic books too. I mean, this was all this yeah, stuff. The infantry of the, the comic strip of like Little You know, pub, the publishing uh, business was booming, but it was all like just, it was, a, there was a, just so many different things being produced because there were so many people and it was, like you said, it was one of your main sources of entertainment. So they were just dishing out detective stories, love stories, Western yeah. magazines, Western novels, uh, you know, comic books were being... Or fantasy, you know, or, you know or, or, or the Tarzan, the Far East stuff, or John Carter going to Mars, you know, that kind of like... Yeah, science fiction, all these different things. Because Jules Verne's popular now, uh, you know, I don't know, H.G. Wells might be coming, you know, so like science fiction is just as popular in, in the, the, the advent of the American Western genre is kind of... The American Western is dying in the end of the 20th, beginning of the 20th century, so there's still... Uh, dime store novels are going out. These are replacing the dime store novels. So this is the basic. Aside from like newspapers, this is your other form of of entertainment. Is just to yeah. read these quick, easily disposable. I think they're relatively cheap. You know. Now uh, something that became, you know, a, a way to publicize your magazine, a way of promoting what you were doing, was to buy sponsor time on the radio it boosts sales so and this is also something that goes into tv in its infancy because in the old days sometimes it'd be like on television it'll be like the colgate comedy hour it'll be the texaco so like blake saying is the the sponsor the company the cigarette company the gas station company would own the radio time or own the tv time and you'd buy that hour the jello hour you know and, yeah and the colgate hour with you know, you know uh, the, abbott and costello or jerry yeah, lewis and you know uh, or or you know uh, lucky strikes you know lsmft lucky strike mean means fine tobacco so you'd buy so they, these big not robber barons but these big these big companies would own the airwaves, and if you were a big enough star, they'd put you on. It'd be Jack Benny's hour, or it'd be whatever. So these, so to boost sales for some of these magazines, since there's so many out there, they would, if they had the money, they could buy a sponsored hour on on the radio in the 20s or the 30s, and then they'd be able to put a program on to try to, you know, this is sponsored by, you know, Rice Roy cigarette, Vice Roy, but at the same time, it's bringing you. You know, Joe Blow. In this instance, we're talking about uh, Street and Smith Publications. Now, they buy some airtime, and they're, tr- they're trying to promote their magazine. Yeah. So basically, they would they started doing a weekly show uh, that was to promote their magazine, uh, their pulp magazine called Detective Story Magazine. So they would basically 
just do, an anthology genre. Yeah, and but do like audio, audio versions of what they were, were publishing. Yeah. And so what they did was they decided, you know, aside from just the regular announcer, that would be like, you know, Street you next week, you know. <laughs> Street and Smith's publisher hour, you know. They 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 decided that they needed a host for the show, very much in the way of uh like Tales from the Crypt. Yeah. Kind of thing that way we know something that we can relate to on our uh you know our level from our, our generation, yeah. which, you know, the pulp you know, Tales from the Crypt is coming from a very similar background in comic books. And they go, and of course they go to an advertising agency to help them out with this. And the advertising agency is like, well, you know, they're looking for a name for the guy. Maybe we can come up with a name for the host or something. And they're like, maybe the inspector or the sleuth. I mean, Sherlock Holmes is big now. Agatha Christie kind of stuff. So maybe. And then uh, this guy Harry Eggman Charlotte is the he comes up with the idea of the name the Shadow as the Phantom announcer. Which is kind of it's ingenious because even a show that I love, Charlot, Charlot, C H A R L O T. I have W for some reason. Oh, do you? Maybe I typed it wrong. Um, He, there's a show I love that we bring up quite a bit from the radio air called Suspense, and that was uh, the Man in Black, which was actually voiced by Joseph Kearns, who's Mr. Wilson from the original Mr. Will uh, from Dennis the Menace. But it's like that is a great way, and that. Ends up being like you're saying the EC Comics. You have like the Crypt Keeper. You have the Witch, the Ghoul, and that's all a take from radio. Where you had uh, all the different radio shows, like Inner Sanctum, had the guy that they opened the door and he say these terrible puns, which were funny at the time, like "Don't slip and fall to death." <laughs> you know, so it was an ingenious and a very usable time of instead of having an MC like you know Dion Bias here. You know, you, they came up with this mysterious person called the Shadow who would just intro and outro yeah, these shows. Yeah, bookend the show. Yeah, and then the show would be an anthology show about uh, maybe a crime fighter, a detective, a cop, or whatever. Just usually, I guess, that genre of uh, crime, you know. Now, the show became popular. Yeah. And... And this guy would only, the, the Shadow would only intro and outro the show. Yeah. yeah do the bumpers, you know, or do, do the tags. But it was during this time that the, the phrase, the Shadow Knows... Was invented. What evil lurks in the hearts of men? The shadow knows. I don't and even know if it was that. I might at that point. It just might have been the just shadow been the shadow knows. knows. But the, the 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 character, the narrator, the shadow, and started becoming popular amongst viewers and, and listeners mean, and listeners, and so they started looking for a shadow pulp, like a magazine, and they would go to their newsstand and say, like, "Do you have the Shadow magazine?" They're like, "What's the Shadow magazine?" They're like, "Well, listening to the Shadow show." And they're, no, you're listening to the. Uh, Detective Story Magazine Hour by uh, uh, who we said before the, the Street and Smith yeah Street and Smith you know so Street and Smith is like oh crap like one we don't really have any claim to this character so we better do something because a rival company who, who gets wind that also that's people are looking for a shadow <laughs> they could easily just publish a shadow magazine. or do a sh- shadow radio show or something you know so they they're they're quickly to to capitalize on and that's also how Batman came out Detective Comics Batman was only a guest in an anthology Uh, that's how he got to start as well and maybe even Dick Tracy well I mean a lot of you know even Spider-Man was not Spider-Man's first appearance is not Spider-Man number one it's Amazing Fantasy number 15 so like (laughs) you think about all the other characters at the time that were coming out and didn't didn't, you know didn't stick against the wall there's you know who knows what the ratio is but maybe 20 to 1 or something so they decide that they need to start publishing a shadow detective magazine yeah so coincidentally right around that time they get a submission uh, like a resume from a writer 
named Walter B. Gibson, who at the time was, you know, the the bulk of his work. He had written in a lot of different style, you know, not styles, but formats and stuff. But he was. Uh, a lot of his work had been done. Uh, he was writing about like st- psychic stuff. Well, he's got a really insane background stuff, but he was also yeah. writing a lot about magic. And, and he was he a former. W- he's a former uh, magician. And his wife was a magician. <laughs> and then he's a ghostwriter for. But he was like a ghostwriter, and he would work with magicians and write kind of biographies, like slash autobiographies for people like Houdini and Blacks and Harry Blackstone. Harry Houdini, Harry Black, the original Blackstone, these people. Howard Thurston, like big. Pioneers of that genre of the, you know. So he was all tied into that world and he knew them and he would work with them on books. Uh, And he was also writing for pulp magazines of like, I forget the name of like, Tales of the Strange, you know, those big like fantastic, you know, more science fiction fantasy type stuff. And so the, the ends up they, he gets hired by Street and Smith to start writing the the shadow, to de- and they also to develop this, give this character some background and come up. Yeah, with. so like in the essence, like he's kind of thought of as being the creator of the character, the shadow. But the shadow already existed. But he's the one on radio as an announcer. The, but he's the one that created the story, like the, created the, the character yeah. as we know it, the story, his the the shadow's agents yeah. that he works with, the 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 world and the and the all the villains that he fought and. You know, went from because very soon, just like Batman, uh, who Bob Kane has quoted as saying that the Shadow was a huge influence because Batman doesn't come out till 1939. We're still talking about like 1930, 31 here. Yeah. Uh, you know, he starts creating what he calls super. I think he called them super villains or something because pretty soon it was like the Shadow can't just be fighting like your normal thief. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Dick Tracy having a rogues gallery, and at the time we've talked about. Uh, in the past, this is also the era of you know where uh, you know people are partying in the twenties. Um, you know the people are. It's now the depression hits. Well, but like, yeah. Well, here the that's stock the thing. market. You know, people are worried about the I finances. You know, it's a big thing. You know, we like to put things into some kind of historical. Uh, uh, context. Context, you know, and we talked about the Shadow movie being in historical context in terms of pop culture and how you know it's coming after Batman and stuff. But in terms of the Shadow. You know, I think the radio, he starts being a character on the radio in like 30. And that's already the stock market crashes in 1929, I think it is. And so like uh, Gibson's first uh, shadow stories under the pseudonym Maxwell Grant, which Dion mentioned earlier, uh, is the first one's called The Living Shadow. And it's first published in April 1st, 1931. Now, during the Great Depression, because of, you know, things going on and you get the... uh, Prohibition and you know this crime starts to to rise. And first, these people are idolized because the, since nobody has money in the Dust Bowl out west, they're losing jobs. People like uh, Babyface Nelson, John Dillinger, they they're like Robin Hoods. They're yeah, like, like oh, they're heroes. Yeah, but then all of a sudden there is kind of a, a climate turn. Maybe with John Dillinger, where suddenly they're no longer looked at as folk heroes. They're like, oh no, these are actual like you know with FBI J Edgar Hoover coming in saying no, these these are criminals. You shouldn't be doing this. So then that's why you have the pushback with the Dick Tracy with the Rogues Gallery. He starts going after real villains. Uh, you know, uh, like Dick Tracy's Rogues Gallery starts as real kind of gangsters that he kills, but then 
it kind of gets the like super villains like you're saying the outlandish yeah so to fight back this idea of like uh, uh you know fighting back against the, the this crime that is taking over because of prohibition in the 20s and the 30s um you know and all these different other vices that like you're gonna have a a, a character that's gonna you know take the law in his own hands and be like a vigilante who's a, you know uh jim steranko who we could talk to about later who's an artist he says that like um the shadow um he never believed in the death penalty he was the death penalty you know yeah, it's yeah. like you know he's the judge well, that's like the big difference between what we think of as being batman which but not at the beginning of not batman. In the beginning yeah. of batman that's why i say that's why I, that's why i kind of started it with what we think of as being batman yeah because we think of being of Batman as being like he doesn't kill people, he doesn't use guns because his parents were killed by guns. Yeah. All this but stuff. not at the start. Bob Kane was just, having he's, kill he's people. He's out there to bring people to justice, like like I said. As we think of him in the beginning, it yeah. was different. But uh, Shadow was a dark character created during a dark time, and one of the reasons, other than what's going on around him in the world, that Gibson talks about why he did that was because. You know, at the time, and even to today, to a certain extent, you know, definitely before the 70s, before we get into things like the, you know, the anti-hero type stuff of, of Dirty Harry and... and vigilantism. And, yeah, vigilantes, yeah. and even going into, like, uh, you know, Mel Gibson in, in Mad Max, you know, this this kind of darker uh, anti-hero type thing. You know, heroes were kind of... I think they represented the like the everyday man. Like I think a lot of days people we have this uh, rise of the individualism in the, our culture nowadays, where everybody wants to be their own person and wants to be you know they they want to have these dreams to be something. They can't have menial jobs or tasks. And I think back then that was a little form of it, where it's like people wanted to dream big and they wanted to be able to have think of somebody was on their side. Where if you're a nobody living in a tenement. You know, in a walk up, you know, maybe there's a guy like the shadow who's watching your back against the crime. But, and, you know, you know what I'm saying, but the, the, the character of the shadow itself and it's kind of partially where the inspiration that uh, Gibson uh, takes from for the creation of it is. And you hear it from actors all the time that, you know, playing a villain is much more fun yeah. than playing the, the hero. hero. Yeah. So Gibson recognized this and he's like, the villain's always so much more interesting than the hero. What if I make a hero that's also kind of a villain? Like he's a dark character. Yeah. You know, he will dress him like we would theor we would stereotypically maybe dress like a villain. Yeah, you know, like Dra you know, Dracula. Well he he cites Bram Stoker Bram Stoker's Dracula as a as kind of an inspiration. There's another story, um, the house and the brain, uh, and then there's a French character called Judex, J-U-D-E-X, uh, which is also kind of an inspiration, which is interesting, too, because when they bring the shadow to... F that's a French character. When they bring the shadow to France and it's translated into French because it becomes so popular, they call him Judex. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Yeah, it's probably, like Ju it's probably because it's French. It's probably yeah. Judea or something yeah, it's like a, that. J-U-D-E-X, but he has... And then also at the time, like we said, we ha you have... Sax Romer is putting out Fu Manchu. You have Edgar Rice Burroughs, I think, is writing Doc Savage. Uh, John Carter, Tarzan. Yeah, so you have Zorro. These, Zorro. By that point. You have Zorro in the 20s. So you have all these. And also, also, by that point, of course, Sherlock Holmes was a big deal. Yeah. And there's another character who I can't forget for the life of me, but we talked about in the Batman history you where. I can't remember. You've already forgotten. I've already forgotten, so I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, like, there's a character I can't forget. I can't forget. I can't remember that that is also. Prior to the shadow, 
they say was an inspiration for Batman and also the Shadow from like yeah. the 1890s and other. Because also you you know you get a lot of this goes back to those dime store novels of the western of the 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 outlaw or you know fighting the the west. So you have these guys who are kind of like you know quote unquote superheroes, which they don't even know they're superheroes yet, but they're heroes to save the day. So this is becomes this huge. I I, I would call it fantasy fantasy fiction just in the sense of like it's fantastical it's not fantasy meaning they go to the moon but you have yeah, these yeah. characters like either Tarzan's in the freaking you know in in the jungle or you have Doc Savage is like a early Indiana Jones also we talk a lot about John this, Carter's this, going to the moon we're talking we talk a lot about this stuff uh, and this period of of literature and this kind of literature in our Greystoke that's the, another one the legend of Star- Tarzan yeah. episode which is also Edgar Rice Burroughs yeah so, uh, it, so, but we spent a lot of time talking about. And the reason fiction. I think we 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 talk about this t- till till we're blue in the face is probably because we you and I have realized doing the show, and then I think people who listen who were in the know realize too that all of our entertainment nowadays, the Marvel DC comic book that we know and love, and even the movies we watch and the entertainment we care for is directly connected to all and gets its uh, you know its its roots in the ground from all this from these pulp this era. Sure. You know, I mean, I'm sure if we did a music podcast, we would still, we would always go back to the 30s and 40s, you know, yeah, blues, I mean, folk, you know, you know traditional. Clear, clearly, we talk to a lot of uh, the listeners on Facebook and some some of them uh, direct message us and we've gotten to know some of them fairly well. But, you know, still, that's a very small fraction of of people out there listening to podcasts and listening to movie podcasts. I have no idea if the average, I would, I would imagine the average person. I don't know if the average film lover would even care to know about this. Yeah. Has as much of an interest in history as you and I do. It's, I think it's, it's just a, it's a, probably a digestible entertainment for them. You um, know? you know, I think you and I have a particular, well, interest. you and I also don't, we don't, we're not, per se sports yeah, lovers yeah. so we have a lot of more extra time in our hands. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I know I think it you know but it, it comes from I don't know I mean it comes from just our, our youth I guess I mean but yeah I have no idea if people <laughs> give a shit as much about the history of things I mean I think one of the things that we do on this show and we've always strived to do, like I said earlier, is put things in historical context. But that's because we find it interesting. And yeah. why we'll talk about, you know, it's no small coincidence that a shadow, that a character like the shadow comes out during the Great Depression. And then, you know, several years later, you know, a villain like, uh, like, uh, What's his name? And this uh, Shaiwan Khan, yeah, who's a, a, a guy who's off of Fu Manchu, comes out, but yeah. is coming out, and his goal is world domination. Comes out at the uh, the hot rise of Hitler, <laughs> the beginning of yeah. World War Two. The axis of evil, where, yeah. Where like this this idea of world, someone seeking world domination, doesn't seem so yeah, <laughs> so place, unlikely. Yeah. Yeah, you know those things are the kinds of things that you and I find really interesting. I would imagine that you know the people that listen to the show find those things interesting, or they might not be as they wouldn't gravitate towards the show. But I have no idea if, at this point if people our age and younger 
care a much about care as much about like the history of not only just world history and current events but especially pop culture history because you know you, you and I could sit here and talk about you know <laughs> Burroughs and Tarzan For and Doc yeah. well you know there's <laughs> until a we're blue in the fish. there's a good example of that now where I'm hearing from friends of mine who who are big into hip hop where there's a new uh generation of 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 hip hop performers rappers and the younger people there, there is an argument that's pretty public that a lot of them will vocally say they don't care about the forefathers of hip hop, and they'll they'll thumb their nose, give the finger at the people who like you know Ice T or, or Ice Cube, the guys who started like say quote unquote gangster rap in the late '80s, early '90s, because they're like screw it, why do we need to know history? And you could, one can argue that's the ignorance of youth, where it's like why do we need to know history? When the older people are like, well, we're the ones who came here and put it here, yeah, you know, yeah. and then the other people are like, screw you, you know, and so there's a whole different avenue of like, you want to know history to make yourself better because you know knowledge is power, or you know history is doomed to repeat yeah. itself, you know. So I think if you broaden that out to the world, I also now, think there's a bit maybe maybe the people that are like us, the film lovers and stuff, maybe they are interested in it because they think it's not like our upbringings. You know, in terms of our childhoods are similar enough, and we discuss, you know, often the collective childhood. Like how we have this like collective childhood, but at the same time, like our childhoods aren't similar enough. You and my, yours and mine, in that like we w- were, you know, force fed a certain thing. I think it comes from that you and I, and I think a lot of people like us, have this mentality of like when we really get into something. We want to find out as much as we can about it. Yeah. And so, like, for instance, when I got really into Eric Clapton, it was because of Eric Clapton that I got into, like, Freddie King and yeah. then Muddy Waters and then going back to Robert Jones. It opens all these you other know, doors. You start, yeah. you start just tracing it back. And yeah. I think probably now that, you know, we're having this discussion, I think that's, you know, uh, I think you hinted at it or not even hinted at it. You said it earlier, and, it, and I'm just now putting the pieces together, that it really is, like, we're obsessive about the things that that we obsess over. Yeah. And so it is like we want to know everything about it and it just, you're like you said it just starts opening these doors and we just start tracing it back until we get to things like the shadow when we're really into Batman. And it, it doesn't I mean? even seem to be like we're covering Blake and I don't make a conscious effort to cover these movies so we can talk about this because we do talk about this and like we said infrastructure. <laughs> it just seems like a lot of the movies we we, yeah, yeah. we we cover end up having these in common. Well, you know, it's like they say with like rock and roll. You know, it's like it's all it's you know, all so, rock and roll to so, me. So, so many pop, so many popular musics all get funneled back to one place, which is yeah. like jazz and blues. Yeah, you know, so much of pop culture and, and the kinds of things that we discuss, anything from ethnic folk and yeah, all yeah, that kind of it's all, all it's all originating from one place. So and it's, it's all I, we funneling. Find it, yeah, we find it fascinating to go back up that trough and, and figure out where it came and then look at that stuff and then you, digest that. You guys can't see this, but in Dion's parents' basement we have you know, this you elaborate. Know. <laughs> they gave me a wall <laughs> with yarn because they won't let me use Sharpies on the wall anymore. So giant the, web. So now once we take this down, Blake and I's got to plaster the wall back up from You're all the tack marks taking pictures so that we don't lose we them. don't lose our thing you know we look it looks like one of those yeah the end of a, one of those david patterson novels you know <laughs> but, but when you have something like the shadow that originates you know as such a minor character in a thing then gets fleshed out in in uh 
the pulp or the in the magazine, pulp magazine and then in turn turns so, around turns around and gets put back into radio with this new character and then it's you have the longevity of it it's like the evolution of it becomes fascinating well you know so he gets fleshed out by uh, Walter B Gibson like we said he, Walter B Gibson starts cranking out uh, two novels a, uh, a, a month, once on the 1st, once on the 15th. Uh, he does that for 20 years. Like Blake said, there's 325 tales. He writes 282 of them himself, which is fucking insane. Uh, then by 1937, the, the Shadow is so popular in, in magazine literary form, they then bring back a, a, a radio show that is The Shadow, which is he's not the narrator of an anthology series. He's going to be the star of a show. But also, even before that, by 3032, he starts being serialized in the movies and shorts. I mean, because not only, the, you know, you know, the radio is probably the radio and the and the and the books are, are probably the most famous, the most rec- recognizable, the ones that we think of the most. But we also have, you know. He's also in film. He gets serials from, from 31 to 32, which are basically kind of adaptations of some of the stuff that uh, Gibson is writing. And then you get a bunch of features pr- around the time that the radio show starts again. So you get like 37, 38, 40, 46. Yeah, so you have six shorts from 31 to 32, uh, which are like Blake says, they're kind of like adaptations of the novels. You get a, the, in 37, you get a one called The Shadow Strikes, which is a, which is a film. In 38, you get the international crime this is also at the same time like i i'm a big lover of charlie chan charlie Ch- there's a lot of at, at this time uh sequel you know people love going to see their favorite characters and you know you have tarzan serials but charlie chan has movies um you know there's a whole there's a lot of different kind of um uh, I mean, Houdini had had a serial, yeah, serial. But he was silent era, wasn't he? Because what year yeah, did Houdini I guess, die? Yeah, I guess you're right. That was during the silent um, era. But you have like Mom, Pa, Kettle. Like be, it becomes something of like even Red Skeleton has the Whistler. There's you have like of people, but you know, uh, uh, okay, we're gonna stop the car for a second. I'm gonna and I'm gonna say something funny, which I I find funny because I've always trying to equate you and I like what our what our 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 friendship is like and i i looked at it uh, our friendship is kind of like um bob hope and um <laughs> bing, crosby. bing crosby from the road two movies where i guess i'm kind of bob hope and you're bing crosby but like you have the road two movies like these the, this people loved going back and seeing their favorite characters and they would come back you know into the movies so the shadow is doing the same thing he has another movie a third film feature length at the time feature length in 1940, which is called The Shadow. And then it goes on. He's got a movie in 1946, The Shadow Returns. And then he's got two more in the 50s, or one more in the 50s we can get to. But, the, yeah, the 50s, that's the whole other yeah. thing, because that's actually generated from television. Yeah, because at the time, television. But we forget, and, and another thing I love to talk about is that there. I feel like there's the forgotten art of radio. And radio was so huge back in the day because... You know, we have movies uh, doing well, uh, you know, in the theaters, you'd go see them. But radio was intimate. You could do that at home. You know, if someone on your block or someone on your floor had a radio, you can hear music, you can hear the radio show. And it was like television is today or maybe even in the Internet where you could that was your your connection to the outside world. And it's amazing to think that the stuff you can accomplish on the radio with radio shows, you can have romance, Western uh, this, which is kind of like pulp, uh, private detective, Sherlock Holmes, um, the, the things Blake and I love, the horror with suspense, inner sanctum, uh, all this and stuff you, and, is, is, and you get all those like 
adaptations of movies. Movie, and it's so all this stuff, by the way, you can go find readily available on the internet. Either it's on YouTube or you can download it for free because the, all it's this all, shit's in public domain. Yeah, it's all public domain. You know, but another advent at the time in the 30s and the 40s was you'd have a movie come out, say The Maltese Falcon with uh, Humphrey Bogart, and then you'd have a radio adaptation come out maybe the same time or a couple years later, perhaps with a different... So you have Humphrey Bogart doing the movie adaptation, and then you have, say, Edward G. Robinson doing the... Uh, or the, sometimes you would get the actual star from the movie. Do it again. You know, so there's, like, say, there's two there's two different versions of... Radio versions of Mr. Blanding's, Blanding's Builds His Dream House. One is with Cary Grant and Irene Dunn, and then the other one is with Cary Grant and the other girl who either... I'm getting my girls mixed up, but it's either the girl that was in the theatrical movie or the girl he wanted in the theatrical movie that he yeah, couldn't yeah. get. So sometimes you'll get two or three different versions, which is amazing, and they're condensed. Yeah. Yeah. It's an hour or a half-hour version of whatever. Same thing with, like, Philadelphia Story with Cary yeah. Grant. You you know, have you'll get, like, different, not Jim Stewart around the corner, corner you know, you, another. you can get, there's tons of stuff, you know. But it, then if you're, if, like, you're like me, and you actually, you know, you you love Cary Grant, you have something like an adaptation of Shadow of Doubt. Yeah. That, inst- <laughs> that instead of... Uh, Joseph Cotton plays him in the movie. Yeah, you get Cary Grant playing that part in the radio. Yeah, show. And, it, and, and some of that stuff is amazing. You get <laughs> so different it's people. It's a crazy what if. Yeah, <laughs> like a but like but like manifested. But it's so if you're into something, I mean, you think of that nowadays, and I don't know why they don't do that. You know, nowadays, but if if, if, if in podcast form, you can have another. You know, and that's another thing about these these radio shows, which were so fun, like a Jack Benny, which was a comedy show. Every week you'd have someone, an A-list star come on, or, or Suspense, which was an anthology suspense oh, horror suspense. show. You'd get every week, you'd get Vincent Price, you'd get Cary Grant, you'd get Peter Lorre, you'd get a name, you know, people who were out. Because at the time, when you had a new movie coming out, instead of just now going on the talk shows, like the late night talk shows we do nowadays, they would do this. They'd go and do an episode of Suspense, and they'd say, well, what are you here to pitch? Well, I've got a new movie out called Shadow of a Doubt. (laughs) Go see it. Uh, And, you know, he's on loan from us from MGM Studios because he's out with a new movie. So it's this whole forgotten genre, which I feel very sad that it's gone because there's so much that could be accomplished because you take out the visual. If you close your eyes, the idea of the theater of the mind where, you know, half of this stuff... You're doing the job for the for the storyteller. Uh, you know, you're inventing much more than they can ever produce. And Jack Benny would always say that it was so hard when his show went from radio to TV because then you'd have to now illustrate the joke. Where in the old days you can just do sound effects and do something, and then people in their heads can do it themselves. But then when you have to then show, it kind of takes the glory away. So when they when TV came into being in the fifties. Um, TV came out in the late 30s, but then because we had the World War, we had to stop and had to deal with the war. And also, you know, The Shadow became a, a comic strip for a while, but then they got canceled in the 40s because they needed the space and newspaper to, to, to report on what was going on in the, the European and uh, Pacific theaters for World War II. They, needed, they, they stopped doing stuff. But when... And TV comes out in the 50s, it kind of kills radio. And radio kind of gets decimated into the 60s because either everyone's watching television, everyone has a TV by that point, or everyone's going to the movies and you don't need radio anymore. So it kind of dies out. And by the 70s, it's really on its last leg. You still get productions of yeah. some stuff. But the heyday, which is into the late 50s, is I mean, gone. Even to this day, the BBC radio stuff. They still do Still stuff. do things. They'll uh, do radio adaptations. We did last year, we did um, Blade Runner. We they did, did a Blade Runner. They did a, an interesting Blade Runner yeah, adaptation. Yeah, uh, Andrew's Dream of Electric Sheep. Of course, there's the... Doctor Who, they do. But also, like, even here, because I don't think that was... I don't think the Star Wars ones were BBC, but that was, like... 
the, yeah, the, they did radio. Public radio, and that's the same thing. Is I don't know why they don't do big things like that to gain people come back to well, you know, either even if it's subscription based, do like a podcast. You could do have the stars around a table doing a table read of something like we we talked about Reservoir Dogs. We did the podcast last year, and they did an I think it was they did a table read. Maybe there's maybe there's some sort of thing where you can go watch people do Tabor reads and it's a different revisioning of the cast. But they did like an African American cast version of Reservoir Dogs yeah. and like why not have somebody produce like they did with the Star Wars like through public radio? Uh, what do you call that? P- uh, NPR. NPR. Yeah. Produce something like this and that'd be amazing, you know. Well, anyway, we're going down the but so when the radio comes out, we're, Shadow goes on the radio. We're illustrating the significance of <laughs> of how amazing. Radio. Yeah, right. And you should really go if you haven't. You know, people. Listen to podcasts and music and everything else under the that's sun nowadays. That's something that, uh, you know, at least together we got into, I don't know, 15 years ago. What, radio? Well, like old-time radio well, I've, I've always, when I was but little. There was a point where, like, you and I got into them together. And yeah. And we would, like, sit around and listen to this. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I got into it in my youth because I got into so into, like, my mom showed me going to the library and you could take stuff out for free. I was like, really? So I would go to the media section. And then that's how I discovered or- Orson Welles' War of the Worlds. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And how I discovered the suspense was on cassette tape. So I'd take the cassette tapes home and I would copy the cassette tapes, you know, and I'd have the. So then when you and I met, I was like, you know, who else do I know would want to. I try to show this to an old girlfriend. And they're like, what the fuck? You know, and what better way in old long car trips, except for me and Blake listening to the doors clapped and in blues or whatever, or Sabbath. I'd say, hey, let's put this in so you and I, and there's no better way to like do a long drive at night than listen to an episode of fucking Suspense yeah, yeah. or one of the like, Inner Sanctum or one of these shows that are so, like, some of these still to this day are so well done, horrifying, and, and um, ex- expertly written. And, and just, just the, I can't say as many adjectives or whatever you call them of how good this stuff is. You can really just go out and find it for yourself. But you and I got into them at some, at some point, and, and then it was astounding that we. You know, it was our favorite actors, uh, Cary Grant, <laughs> Peter Laurie, Vincent Price, Humphrey Bogart, or guesting Joseph Cotton on these, Jimmy Stewart, on these episodes, you know. And uh, sometimes they were doing stuff, like we said, that was like, who, who knew that they're doing a version of this or that? So we we were huge, and I am still a huge radio enthusiast. And I think now if you go to, like, uh, maybe the Library of Congress, uh, .org site, you can get all, you can download all those, and s- certainly with suspense. There is this really private world of collectors who they found like original copies and they've cleaned them up or they have alternate takes or rehearsals because every time they would do a performance, they would burn it out to a, to a, not burn it out. They they do it out on a, uh, a record and they'd have that. And I forget you call that something, uh, an answer record or something. And they were finding these source materials. So like this stuff is still out there for the most part. But it's, it's, it's really, if you're into this cinema and all the stuff that Blake and I are into, you really owe it to yourself to go oh, dive I mean, it's into it's a complete amazing it's like a labyrinth you know, of, of amazingness uh, you know and it's like comedy you'll get lost in you know because Burns there's and so and, much of it yeah you know, you know Abbott and Costello had a radio hour they were contractually obligated to like once a month have to do who's on first because it was so popular Jack Benny Burns and Allen that's Bob Hope that's that's comedy we talked about horror there was westerns there was the shadow it's funny because I listened to a little of the shadow growing up and my shadow guy was Bill Johnstone one of the the, the voices of the many shadows he's the voice I knew yeah. you know so when we when we were researching this they're talking about Orson Welles did the voice of the shadow for a while or other other actors I knew the voice of Bill Johnstone one of the the uh the guys in it also even um What's his face? Uh, did the voice of the shadow for a while? The guy from um, 
uh, White Heat, the actor who's... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what's her name? Even John Archer, who is uh, the father of Ann Archer, who we know oh, yeah, as... Yeah. Um, she was on... What did, what did she have her on? She was on... Was she in Raise the Titanic, maybe? I think Ann Archer's in Raise the Titanic, but she's in Patriot Games. She's Harrison Ford's Jack Ryan's husband. Fatal Attraction, maybe? She might but be we, in Fatal Attraction. Do, but I think she's in there. Uh, she's in Clear and Present Danger, and she might be in a couple of Chuck Norris movies. She's gorgeous, Ann Archer. But her father, um, John Archer, was the voice of the shadow for a little while, and people will know him like me. I'm a big fan of uh, White Heat. He's the cop in White Heat that helps get Edmund O'Brien into the prison to go after, um, uh, what's his face, uh, uh, Cody Jarrett, James Cagney's character. But... Getting back on task, this movie, this show comes out in 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 the in the 30s, and in 1937, when this comes on radio, they get the young 22 two year old Orson Welles to come out and do the original uh, first couple maybe seasons or two of of. I think he did it for about a year. Yeah, and this is I, if you look at his chronology, I think he does War of the Worlds in 1938. So this must be prior to him either developing the. Um, uh, uh, what's his name? His the Mercury Mercury Theater players that I think they would do plays, but then he got into radio and he had a troupe of like Joseph Cotton, a lot of people who you see come out and go into um, uh, Citizen Kane. But he's he premieres on here as the Shadow, and he's young, he's twenty two, and and they also write for the radio show only. They come up with this character named Margot Lane, and she is voiced by Agnes Moorhead. And Agnes Moorhead, people will know, she has a big storied uh, Hollywood career in cinema. And most recently for people, she plays on, I think, what is it, Bewitched? She plays Elizabeth uh, Montgomery's maybe aunt or stepmother? No, I think it's her mother. Her mother on Bewitched? That's yeah. Agnes Moorhead, uh, who I, I think in real life was a lesbian. Uh, she w- was Margot Lane in on the radio show. But Margot Lane, the character who's tied into the 1994 movie we're doing tonight, she was an invention of the radio show. And she was only on the radio show for how many years? And then they finally only they, they started putting her into the pulp magazine at some point. And then the diehard fans in the magazine got mad. They're like, why are you putting this broad into the, you know, she's not in it. <laughs> and this is where we, we come to a fork in the road where Blake and I were saying it gets kind of confusing because you have the pulp uh, magazine literary version of The Shadow and then you have the radio version of The Shadow. And they do two different things where the, the they've already established... Um, which we haven't really got into is the shadow in literary. He has a he has like a, a syndicate of agents who help him do his not Asians. No, not Asians. Agents. Agents. I mean, some of them might be Asian. A couple of them are Asian, <laughs> but um, but they're his agents who help him get things done and you know which help is him kind get, of in, it's it's it, it, it's it, in the movie. It's in this movie, yeah. But and some of them are from them are from yeah, you the, know like Mo, uh, the taxi driver, yeah, Peter Boyle's character, character Mo, and the other then, guy, the the guy who's sitting in the room disseminating all the different Burbank. clues, Burbank. So when you get to radio, when they go do this on radio, some years later in '37, they realize that it's going to be too convoluted for people to understand in like a 25 minute uh, radio show. All these characters, so they simplify it down. They invent this Margot Lane character, which is kind of like a a femme fatale to, to, that, that does a lot of the adventures with him. That I think also knows his secret identity, and then they devise this other. I think this is correct, where they give him the idea of he's able to cloud people's minds, so. That the, to explain away why he's in the room with with gangsters or how he's able to get around so quick, they kind of give the idea that he's a little of a psychic. 
Lamont yeah. Cranston. And well, that was you know when before we started rolling, I was like, well, here's the thing I don't get because like, in the movie he's yeah yeah this, it's all our, about like it's all about movie. like yeah. he's psychically well endowed yeah <laughs> you know and there's that comedy again, <laughs> but uh, in in this I don't get a sense that. You know, it's as big of a thing in some of the other... In the radio it is, because he's able to... That's the whole thing. He's able to... If you listen to the radio show, he's able... Like, so it's So it's not like he's able to disappear or, or go invincible. He's able to cloud someone's mind so they just can't see him. So yeah. it's... Because it kind of gets even me. It's kind of confusing. Like, wait, wait. You know, what is this specifically? We're... Uh, in Pulp, he's not doing that. In Pulp, he's just using elaborate disguises. I mean, in the Pulps... If you want to get down to it too, which I don't we're, see, it's like we're, we're, we're walking it's, it's all over because ourselves. It's also his real name it's in a the weird web of in the pulps things. His real name is Kent Arland, but I, see that's the thing. So okay, so if so we, yeah. So in the movie, he's his name is Lamont Cranston. He, his his identity is Lamont Cranston. is Lamont is Lamont Cranston. Now, if you go to the novelization. Uh, Done by James Lucino, he the uh, novelization for the nineteen ninety four movie, which dives deeper into a lot of the things like and, novelizations do, and also has this thing that Dion yeah was they just make references about. to what we're gonna what we're saying here in the original. It's interesting. The backstory of of the Shadow character is that he is uh, a lot of people don't know, but he was maybe a spy in World War One or an well, aviationist. It's, it's he's a man of mystery, and Aviator. so throughout you know you're you're getting a novel every two weeks, so you have this history and this world being kind of uh, you know rolled out by by Gibson and some of these other writers, you know throughout decades yeah. of writing. So a lot of exposition. You know, so it, it there's this mystery of his pa- of his past, but there's also at, at some point you believe that he's Lamont his 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 secret identity is that he is Lamont Cranston. But then in another novel it's revealed that in the pulp basically the, it, we're talking about in the pulp novels that Lamont Cranston He's not Lamont Cranston, that there is a Lamont Cranston, but he's like this rich playboy and he travels all the time. Lamont Cranston, so, yeah. While, Lamont, while the actual Lamont Cranston is overseas, he's, he's pretending to be Lamont Cranston Yeah, there's a guy named City. Kent, uh, A-L-L-A-R-D. No, well, that's the thing. Now, so eventually, Ar- but, it, but uh, what Dion's getting at is that there's this other identity of Kent Arland. Who he did. R- R- Allard. Allard. That we that is revealed, but it's not revealed until 1937. Okay, so well into you know years into it. So what we find out is <laughs> this is supposed to be his real real name, and that he was either a famed it, aviator or he in a, in a novel called The Shadow Unmasks. Yeah, in 1937, it's revealed that he's not Lamont Cranston. But Lamont Cranston is just he's been one, of, one of his many identities. Yeah, so but he's Lam- actually this ex uh, World War One fighter pilot, or or like Allard. spy or something that has supposedly gone lost in the South American jungles, and he returns back to the United States. He uh, assumes the 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 identity is Lamont Cranston. He plays Lamont Cranston, who's basically AKA Bruce Wayne, kind of in New York. And then what happens is at some point the real Lamont Cranston, who's a real rich playboy, Bruce Wayne, comes back from touring the world and is confronted by this guy Kent Lennard. I think it's Allard. I can't spell. And I have a novel coming out. And. 
this guy, he, he, he confronts Lamont Krentz and says, hey, I've been impersonating you while you've been away. I've got incriminating evidence about you as well as he's, he's falsified these documents. And he says, listen, go back and start traveling the world again, you know, transatlantically or whatever, and go do that. I'm going to play you here. And Lamont Krantz and the real one's kind of into it. He says, okay, peace out. He leaves. And this guy still assumes Lamont Cranston's role. But see, this all we just said gets so convoluted that on the radio show, they're like, we're not going to even do yeah. anything. Plus, Lamont Cranston is Lamont Cranston, and that's what they end up doing, too, yeah. in the 1994 movie. Plus, to make it more convoluted, you know, that happens at 37. Sometime later, in a later novel, it's then implied that he's not actually Ken Allard. Either. But that that's just another, one, another yeah. of the many... Uh, identities that he assumes, and, and there's this whole thing, and I think in the novels where eventually it's released that he he might be horribly scarred and like not have a face. Like going and back so, to World War One, his crash or whatever. Yes, and, and so that he has a, he has like a wire frame mask that he puts on that then he could put anybody's face, and on that's it. the reason why he's he's hiding his face with the red cloak or whatever. So um, we talk about. The idea of the shadow is that not only do people not know who he is because he's wearing kind of like this big kind of not it's not even a Stetson it's kind of a big kind of a hat he kind of looks like uh, Judge Doom from um, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit he's wearing that kind of a coat he's got a red cloak that goes over his mouth so you can't really see his you can only see kind of his nose he's a strong kind of a yeah. uh, which is uh, interesting uh, you know from you know there's all these I always talk about like I find it interesting how things come to be creative wise and you think it's one reason but it, it's more logistics and you know the the stereotypical image of the shadow that we think of is what Dion's describing with this red scarf over his face and then with like a long kind of a cape with a red lining yeah and that was specifically so that they wanted to put red on the cover so that they would stand out on the newsstand yeah this crimson because there's you think about if you're going by a newsstand and there's hundreds of of magazines that are like up there with uh, with uh, 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 Jesus fucking Christ, I can't say with um, uh, clothesline. Uh, yeah, and yeah. newspapers which are black and white. So you want something to stand out. So they would give like a crimson background to these things, so it would stand up like, oh, what the hell is that? And then to incorporate that into his character, clothespin. If to incorporate that into his character, that would stand out and get the people's visual attention. And it's also, on a side note, I'm a huge, huge enthusiast of old pulp art. I love the pulp art of the old days. So you have these two guys, George and Jerome Rosen, uh, R-O-Z-E-N. They were artists, pulp artists at the time. And they both, uh, on their own, they drew um, covers for, for um, the Detective Stories novel, uh, the magazine. And they, they're the ones who first started drawing. Uh, and painting. And painting, yeah, but basically painting the shadow. Even the first issue that has the shadow appear, the shadow's not on it. It's the Chinese man. And they're like, well, we've already done the cover. So they had. Which to, they stole, they recycled from something else. Yeah, so they just put a shadow of the guy in the background. So the shadow doesn't <laughs> even appear as it is. <laughs> and then it's funny because then Gibson sees that that's the cover they're going to use. So then he goes and changes. Story? The story to be set in Chinatown. Yeah, to have just it, so it has some kind yeah. of link. To and they only put cover. on the original cover, just they put like the shadow nose exclamation point in the background. So it's not until issue eight that you really first get uh, what the shadow looks like. And they're only just, it's almost like the original Sherlock Holmes when, when Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was putting them out. The illustrator, I forget that gentleman's name, 
uh, his, we, can't, we can't know everything. Well, people. I know, I know. We only do half of it. We always say that you you, you go do <laughs> we everything. We get you up to a certain point, and then, then you say go. The rest is homework. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the illustrator who was drawing the illustrations for the inserts for uh, the original publications of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes, he modeled Sherlock Holmes off of his brother, and his brother had that strong profile with the yeah, nose, call it like a hawk profile. Yeah. So that's the reason why we have this look of Sherlock Holmes today, and then also the stage actor at the time who lives in Gillette's Castle in Connecticut, uh, who made it, which I don't remember his name. He's the one who pioneered the, the that that hat that Sherlock Holmes wears and because of that with the pipe now we associate that so now sure, yeah. getting to the shadow it was only because George and Jerome Rosen were drawing him a certain way that we know the shadow and it's it it you know guys like Graves Gladney uh, Tom Lavelle who did the inserts uh, these guys or, or Eddie Cartier Cartier uh, Earl uh, Man Manin these guys are like really pioneers in drawing realistic covers, and, and they're the ones just taking work, drawing these covers, uh, usually like shoot 'em ups or you know girls in trouble or gangsters or really amazing visual, you know. Color, I mean, the, yeah, I know, mean the pole bar. They're works of art. Is amazing. Yeah, you can yeah. go get books on uh, how amazing these look, and I have a couple books and a couple posters. Uh, they're the ones who actually gave the look of what the shadow and all these characters know. So getting back to what we were just saying, the shadow has many. We don't even know who he is. He has many identities. Because he's able to, he's kind of like Batman, where he has this guy Henry Arnault, and he's he, he's a businessman. He uses it as a disguise. There's another guy Isaac Twambly, who is uh, another person he inhabit. There's a guy like a dim-witted, uncommunicative janitor. Uh, the shadow disguises himself in so he can go into New York City Police Headquarters to overhear what the police are saying, which is kind of like something that Batman Bruce Wayne has used before in in, in the in the Batman world to you know so. The shadow uses that to like disguises very well, to, and then he uses all these other people that he'll he'll get these people that we see in the 1994 movie where he'll say like I've saved your life now you owe me. It's kind of like a I think that's a Chinese or an Orient. J, I mean you know, I can't I don't know if that's if it's, it's a life that, for a life you know now yeah, that I've I'm saved you. I'm not sure you, if you, they inject that into the movie, but he definitely has agents. But, but it has that yeah. So he, the city and then and what stuff. he does is he gives these agents this ring, and then you know the ring, and there's something you say, which we see in the 1994 movie. The idea of that they feed know, him info a, that you you know you owe me your life now could be because because one of the things that uh, David Kep does when he when he which is the screenwriter getting back to the 1994 movie. when he writes the the movie. He starts to think of because the movie does the movie is faithful in a lot of ways, like the ends talking about with the with the agents and stuff, and with both the the idea of the the what they were doing in literary and then what they were doing on the radio. He marries the two. Yeah, for the one of the things that I think he does make up is this backstory because he takes this idea of if the shadow knows what lies in the heart, darkness lies in the heart of men. Evil, what evil lies in the heart of men, it must be because he has had you know he struggles with his own evil yeah he he had to have known evil to you know to go after it so he creates this backstory which is the beginning of the movie which we were talking about kind of feels a lot like batman begins yeah, and it's because <laughs> it's, it's it's truncated and it's an idea where it's kind of undeveloped for me because in the sense of like if you think of lamont Crant, so in the but my point is that all takes place in tibet yeah so that idea of that you owe me 
It's uh, that, that, that I saved you my life. It might be like a Tibetan. That Eastern kind of an idea. That, yeah. yeah. Because in the movie, we don't even bring up the idea of him. He's only Lamont Cranston in the movie. I brought up the novelization a couple minutes ago. The writer, James Lucino, who did the novelization, he did a lot more research and was able to flesh a little more out into the, the Shadow character. So he brings up the fact that uh, the Shadow's true identity is actually Kent uh, um, Ar- Allard. Uh, Allard, I think. Allard. Uh, from the pulps, and that he also that in that he's impersonating Lamont Cranston, and also he brings up the Shiwan Chan Khan, who's the bad guy in this movie. They point out his, uh, you know, um, Shiwan Khan points out to the shadow that you know his wealth is only from heroin and opium sales, you know, from the from the Orient or from the out east, which you don't get in the movie here. They drop all, they just keep his Lamont Cranston and all that. So in the movie, you have. That his backstory is that we learn that Alec Baldwin as Lamont Cranston, I guess, was a wealthy person to do, maybe, or we don't know. Something I, I feel like he was a Bruce Wayne type character, very much like Batman Begins. He goes fucks off for for it says seven years, but then in the movie it seems like it was like a whole lifetime because he's suddenly like with the Mongols and he's yeah, Genghis Khan slaughtering vo- villages, <laughs> and it looks like it's like the Middle Ages and he's got blood all over his face and. They've so openly accepted this this uh, white you know white man uh, yeah. this westerner into their world and he's built this world for himself. So at the beginning of the 1994 Shadow, when we see the character actor, you pointed out both of them, the yeah. Chinese character actors, um, James Hong and Ali Young, that like he you get this reveal like who's this evil you know uh, uh, Fu Manchu villain going to be? And it's actually. Alec Baldwin, Lamont Cranston with long hair, long nails, and he's got no shirt on, very, you know, like, hey, you know, and he's very evil, and he, he kills people at the drop of a hat, he doesn't care. So when they force this redemption on him to become, you know, see the error in his ways and go back, it's, it's to me, it's, it's, it's not like it's unconvincing, but it's not, he doesn't, it's like he doesn't have the realization, you know, it doesn't seem like there's a payoff where maybe, I haven't seen Batman Begins since it's come out, maybe there's more of that there where, you know, Bruce Wayne has to find himself to be realized he has to go back and then now he masters all the arts right to go back and fight crime in Gotham mm-hmm. where now this seems to me like it's unfulfilled where the yeah you know I mean, what I mean it does it he's does being seem... forced they find him out Lamont Kranz they say you were gonna make you you're gonna redeem yourself and it's kind of like they create but Kepa creates see how ba- convoluted this is everybody ladies creates and gentlemen this backstory and his intention was that the movie would be like a story about guilt and atonement but it doesn't play that way. I think that's what you're getting. Yeah, at, it's is just, that there's not. I feel like he feels like he's forced, and it's like he's. And you maybe know. it's maybe that kind of stuff winded up on the on the cutting room floor, you know, or you know, maybe it's in the novelization because maybe it's in earlier versions of the script. You know, it's it's hard to tell, but like I agree, it doesn't quite pay off. I in think the movie maybe because there's limitations on time script budget you don't you know it's it's not you don't have the time I mean, to, we to see roll that it out he's, we see that he's riddled with nightmares about what he's done yeah and that's supposed to be to show that he has i guess come to the realization that what he did before was wrong and now he's riddled with the guilt and i think there's a line or two in the dialogue that says like you don't know you know oh doesn't she say or does he say it to her or does he say it to him either one like you know you don't know what it is like to have memories of wanting to correct the past you know i'm paraphrasing but yeah 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 you know where you you're 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 so 
you, you you're so upset about your history, your past, and you can't fix it. So you're trying to now in your future I mean, atone I think for that's, your past. I mean, I think that's what they're going for is that he's he's become a vigilante in the crime-ridden 30s New York City to try to make up for his sins. What he's done, yeah. Um, quickly, before we get completely off topic, uh, there was a thing called the Chinese Exclusionary Act at the at the in I think it was like 1882 they signed it. But at the time, in the in the later half of the 19th century, we had a lot of immigration from China. Uh, there was a lot of problems going on over there in that part of Asia. So like a lot of Chinese were going to like Hawaii and uh, California in particular, and we got a lot of the workforce there. And they were a lot of the majority that built the, the Continental Railroads in the States. And uh, because th- they were in a foreign land, they weren't as well educated and they spoke a foreign language. They kept to themselves in, quote unquote, Chinatowns. And uh, they brought with them, you know, their their own culture, which was also with vice, their own vices, their own drugs, heroin or um, uh, what's the other thing, you know, when you're when you're opium. Mm-hmm. So there was a and then. The, historically, people in Europe and people, you know, uh, in, in the West, quote unquote, the Western worlds realized that there was like, you know, with Genghis Khan invading and Mongols invading, you know, centuries before, there was this fear that the Chinese would come and, and uh, at some point outnumber the quote unquote white people and then conquer again. So there was this thing called the Chinese peril. So people were kind of fearful of their because of their own prejudices and phobias that the Chinese would rise up and then overpower and then re- conquer the new lands. So after using them for basically slave labor, uh, you know, building the railroads and other things, they 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 had this thing called the the Yellow Peril, quote unquote, came out, and it was this fear all across the world, not just in America, in Europe as well. That what I just said about the Chinese culture. So they did this in America, the Chinese Exclusionary Act, where they stopped having them immigrate. So that's in the late 1880s. So when you get into the, 19, the early 20th century, there is this phobia around the Chinese, and that's where you get you know people don't the quote unquote Orient. They don't understand their ways. They're in Chinatown. They smoke opium, whatever. So that's where you get a lot of these people like Sax Romer's Fu Manchu come out. You have these arch villains that people, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're maybe they're psychics. They have powers. What the hell? And that's what um, guys um, try to do when they write like Charlie Chan. They try to go against that and say like, no, not Chinese aren't bad. And how it connects here is because you get that here with, you know, uh, that was very popular at the time in the 30s and 20s. So with the Fu Manchu, who's hugely popular, he's the, he's probably the first supervillain that was ever created because he is a, a the Fu Manchu series about this arch villain nemesis who has this world domination, who's trying to take over the world, and people have to thwart him. So in this sh- show, uh, what's the, the the bad guy's name in this movie? Shiwan Khan. Shiwan Khan. Yeah. He is a template for or a stand-in for Fu Manchu. And he's the last descendant of Genghis Khan. Of Genghis Khan, and he's going to come again once take over the world. So that's why you get injected into this. The at the era of the of the radio and pulp, the fear of the Chinese and oh, you know what what's what they're about, and then. You have this character, in, and that even goes up to like you know, and uh, recently you know you have like Johnny Quest, you know, uh, was Mister Mister um, I forget Mister Han or Mister Wong or Bruce Lee and Enter the Dragon, Mister Han. You know, it's like you have these Toby Wong, Toby Wong, Charlie Toby Chan, Chan. <laughs> or Doctor No. You know, same thing. You have these 
arch, you know, Chinese or Japanese villains that are all becoming, and we, I just ran through that history very quickly because we're, you know, we're slowly running out of time here. But that's where you get where we are with the with the with the shadow here now is that the reason why we have the arch villain being this big uh, uh, Khan character, then yeah. he's going to come take over the world. Well, Khan, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> well, it's interesting because you know we're talking about how in the novels, you know, uh, the shadow went up against many, I mean, over 20 years of two, two yeah. levels. Ta- ta- and it, Khan being a, a originally one of the bad heavies as well. Yeah, but it was, you know, Khan only, you know, most of the books, Shadow only fought villains once. Well, that was... And then occasionally he would f- fight them more than once. Khan is one that he fought maybe the most. Yeah, three in, or four times. You know, like I think four times with his with his first appearance being in in an issue in a in a book called uh, the Gold Master in nineteen thirty nine. So there was this whole history of the shadow before uh Khan enters the scene. And like I said, there's probably no small coincidence that Khan's first appearance happens in nineteen thirty nine when you have World War Two starting up yeah. in nineteen thirty nine. Poland yeah, they, Germany invades Poland and, and at the axis of you know, you had Russia and Italy and, and But Japan. he's considered to be like this big arch nemesis, but he only in the in 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 the liter in the literary aspect of it, they only faced off against each other four times. But I think when Kep came was coming, and maybe Kep had this idea of the deba- the, the screenwriter, first, yeah. you know, before he decided. But he kind of saw them as being like a yin and yang. Well, that works. Like, you know that I mean, and that's not uncommon at the time because you look at Dick Tracy. A lot of the Dick Tracy, the the rogues gallery people we know, he kills them at the end of every episode because it never was thought of that they, why would you have someone come back? And it was only because of the public liking the villain so much, like a flat top or whoever, that you'd have them reappear. So a lot of the original comic strips, you know, he kills Mumbles or he kills whatever the hell the guy's name is at the end. So that's not, on the shadow, it's not uncommon that he's fighting new villains. But then because of popularity or because, you know, that's a good trick because at that time hadn't been done, suddenly we're like, oh my God, it's what's his face from a couple (laughs) years ago. And then for, for, I guess, for expedient purposes for our screenwriter in the 1994 movie, since we're going to base it in Tibet and have it be a lot of the Eastern ideas and, you know, and then the the idea of taking from the radio show and having Alec Baldwin's The Shadow be able to cloud people's mind and explain it that way, and then you're taking Margot Lane from the radio show and you're incorporating her into this, that, well, it, it would be naturally have him fight a Asian, uh, uh, in particular Chinese nemesis yeah, heavy, because wonder- that also is... Uh, Ematic, what's the word? Uh, it's 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 it encapsulates that era of the early 20th century we just went through. I wonder if Manchu. I wonder if like it's the you know what came first, the chicken or the egg? Like, is he does he add this Tibetan Asian backstory because he's going to use Khan, or does he use Khan? Or we because or but I also are we th- ignorant? Do we is it? I mean, we talked about how the character uh, briefly. Maybe he was gone in the jungles or in I South don't America. Th- maybe he- to all the research that I did, I couldn't find any evidence that he had that Bruce that, Wayne that, kind of upbringing in Tibet. Yeah, like that I was th- fabricated. I, as far as I can tell, and there's some, I'm sure there are people out there that know far more about the shadow uh, than I do. Listening. Um, and so we apologize, but I think that that was a creation of of David Kev, the screenwriter. But I also think that of Shadow's, you know, big rogues gallery that he fought. If you're going to go with someone that he has fought in in previous versions of the Shadow, I think probably 
one of the impetuses to try to to pick Khan is because Khan's uh, Shaiwan Khan's motivations are so clean cut yeah. and simple in a way for, from a storytelling standpoint. He wants to rule the world. Yeah, you know, Genghis Khan conquered a certain fraction of the world. He wants to he wants to do the same thing. So it's like the the motivation of that character is so clear cut that it probably makes the makes screenwriting a little bit easier than something that might be more convoluted. And before we leave the radio show, they the Shadow show also did had imitators and one imitator they had a show called The Whistler that came out which I'm a fan of and I think Vincent Price did a couple episodes of that, but that's also kind of an anthology show with a narrator doing like the you know the tagging that front and back of that show. Uh, an invention also of the screenwriter for this is they have Margot Lane be uh, psychic, yeah, which is not from any of the any of the shadow canon, be it radio or pulp or literary before that. So quickly to I guess you have we said uh, Orson Welles comes on he 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 goes from September thirty seven to October thirty eight. He's twenty two at the time, very young. Agnes Moorhead she 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 invents or she starts the Margot Lane character. And then after Orson leaves and goes to the Mercury Theater, we have a bunch of people who come in. Like we said, there's uh, Bill Johnstone, who I know a whole laundry list of, well, a couple people. Burt Morrison, uh, Brett Morrison. Uh, Brett Morrison did him for, I think he's the one. Ten lot. years, maybe. He did him for ten years. Yeah. He did him more than anybody else. And John Archer, who he's I brought the, up in Archer's He's father, the Roger Moore of, 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 yeah. <laughs> of the shadow. And then, you know, so this shadow, the radio show goes until the 50s. And then, you know, like we said, it was it was still, they were doing the pulp book as well. They did the... Uh, over 300 of, of novels. They had a comic book, uh, comic strip. That kind of dies down in the 50s, and then... They they produced two failed pilots... In the late 50s to go to television. To try to d- create television shows. One in, uh, f- I think, 54, and then one in 58. And I think that movie that you kind of... Uh, you know, you mentioned earlier the movie in the fifties. I think what they did—I could yeah, be wrong—is that they the, they combined the two pilots and made a feature. Yeah, and that was the movie uh, in nineteen. I think it's nineteen fifty fifty eight called Invisible uh, Avenger, and they, it was that they took just the episodes uh, from you know these show and they really and then they also they re released it in nineteen sixty two called Bourbon Street Shadows. You know, but it so then in. Then D, then they do a revival. What is it? In, in, I think in this in the sixties they do it like another eight eight page issues of the Shadow in comic book form uh, by Archie Comics does this, and then in the seventies DC gets gets yeah. the, the also at some point they start reissuing the books. Yeah, and that's when Steranko starts redoing the covers. So the artist Jim Steranko, who who's a comic book artist, who's who we met at a convention. We yeah, thought we brought we brought because I said he, he's kind of like. Um, you might have talked about him in Indiana Jones because he did some of the like the preliminary uh, yeah. design. We talked in concept art, and that's I bought and had him sign some of the the con- indie concept art. We did talk about. And he I also said he, he was a huge artist for. Uh, uh, who's uh, Luke uh, Samuel Jackson plays him in the Avengers movies? Uh, oh, Nick Nick Fury. Nick Fury. Yeah, he, he was known for doing the Nick Fury. Yeah comics and so he's probably the, the two characters he's probably net best known for uh for drawing or or doing are the shadow and nick fury so when they're repackaging repackaging these comic strips from the 30s and 40s i kept uh, the one that said nick cage, nick cage. 
<laughs> he's known for doing Nick drawing Cage. Nick Cage. <laughs> so he was. They were. They were putting him in these nice books, and then uh, Storanko would do the covers. And we, yeah, go check out the Indiana Jones cast because we met him. He's really cool. I had a conversation about him about my name, and he's like in his seventies or eighties, and he was still jacked, and he kind of looked like he was like you know. To me, what did I say? He looked like a. Uh, uh, Frank Vazetta kind of a character to me, you know. Yeah, or, yeah. Uh, he's, he's he's like in a black freaking turtleneck, and he's like, I can fucking kill you, you know. He's but a magician. The, yeah, and then yeah, he was like he was an he escape was a, artist yeah, at you some know, point. So he's a whole, and then he also had to solve this other art. He I drew think Sherlock he was friends Holmes. with Gibson. I yeah. think that might have been how he got into got, got roped into so, the, the whole world of the shadow. In the '70s, they have Batman. Uh, DC gets it, and they do some pretty cool crossovers with. Batman, 70s Batman, which is Denny O'Neill writing. Yeah. And they have the we shadow talk come about in. Denny O'Neill and uh, Neil Adams, I think, in the Batman cast quite a bit. In the, because that was a... Well, because he was one of the people who helped revitalize it yeah, after the, the post Batman 66 because they brought it back They started back trying from, to make Batman serious. Yeah, again. in the and comics. It wasn't until the 80s where it started getting really dark. With uh, Frank Miller, yeah, and Alan Moore. But so they do a couple issues... Uh, in the 70s and it's pretty cool where they have I think it's issue Batman 259 from December 1974 where they have him cross over and then uh, we learned that like in the world of Batman the shadow saved Bruce Wayne's life uh, when he was a boy and that you know it was because of the shadow that uh, you know Batman got the idea to assume his identity and he ba- the shadow even offers Batman his guns he's like I don't do it that way and he's like well you don't do it now that you know but like we were alluding to at the beginning Batman was since Bob Kane kind of said yeah you know we even modeled like the first story right off of like we yeah. cut and pasted a shadow story Batman was go back to the Tim Burton Batman special we did where it's like he was using guns and he was killing people and cutting ropes and you know and then <laughs> then I think whatever whoever the comic book's like hey you know we should probably make him a little more you yeah. know digestible and ambiguous of a hero um at the time and um and then they did in 86 uh they came back they did some updated they put the shadow in modern day new york city which it was kind of popular but it was very unpopular with the with the yeah. the shadow also, loyal bernie fans did it for a very short time um bernie wrightson has come up bef- on the show a few times uh for silver bullet i know he came up with because he's the one that do the did the illustrations for one of the releases of uh, the story that Stephen the Stephen King thing of where you know uh, werewolf cycle King. of the werewolf yeah um, so he in the eighties it's not it's not popular with the diehard shadow fans that they they contemporary put him in contemporary times but around that time we also have the Rocketeer which Dave Stevens is drawing at the time and. Uh, as you know, the Rocketeer is a send up to that whole era in the Rocketeer. They like to put like Rondo Hatton, uh, Albert Einstein, Amelia Earhart, Charles Lindbergh, Frank Nitti, Gangster, been, uh, you know, Betty, Doc Savage, Betty Page, Betty Page is based is, off is the uh, what's her faces, kind of. the character that uh, Jen, Jennifer um, Connelly. Connelly's character in the movie is based off of uh, in the comic. But the shadow enters the Rocketeer world in that time. And then getting most recently, before we get to this movie here, they did in August 2011, there's a uh, a comic company called Dynamite, and they, they do a shadow reboot series that is written by Garth Ennis. And for Punisher fans, the Punisher Max series that was done in the mid-odds, Garth Ennis wrote that whole run, and that's some of the, not the welcome back, Frank, 
one that they based the 2004 Thomas Jane movie on, which I don't really care for at all. But after that, they did the Punisher Max line with uh, Garth Ennis writing, and it's some of the best Punisher ever. But Garth Ennis is a really dark writer who you met, Irish guy. I, yeah, I met When him. you did the Punisher, you helped work on the Punisher supplemental stuff for Yeah, the, I worked on the special features for the that Thomas Jane. 2004 movie or 2003 movie. And he gave you advice about kind of like the old... Uh, Lon Chaney, Jr., Lon Chaney Sr. advice to Boris Karloff, right? Where it's like, find something you can do well and do it better than everybody else, right? Yeah, like find your find your niche. Yeah. Because uh, I asked him, because at the time I was really, you know, the film thing wasn't working out, still isn't. Yeah. Uh, and I wasn't writing books about horror film music, but I wanted to write something. And I, I got very into the idea of trying to write comic books. And so I met him and, and I asked his advice. And he said, find your thing. You said he was nice too, right? He was pretty nice. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was he was nice enough to sit down with me and talk to me. <laughs> and he's also, we should be remiss, I think he is the... But the, he, he I think before The Punisher, I think he did Judge Dredd. And then he did, I think, Preacher, I think is all Garth in this too, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, But yeah, he was he was nice. Uh, but when, when, what year was he doing The Shadow? He's doing The Shadow, he, and this is 2011, and this gets the, the, the run with Alex Ross doing the covers. Yeah, and the because artwork. I was going to say... Because that is, um, you have some of this artwork in your in your stash in the Saturday Night Movie Sleepover's vault, but <laughs> that run of The Shadow, if you... If if people are interested in it, get the run that they just did. I think they did 26 issues, and then they did a zero prologue issue, but it's from like 2011 to 2012, and it's awesome. It's really dark. It's really completely serious. Garth Ennis writing it, and it's it's really awesome how they do it. And uh, the legendary artist Alex Ross, who people know from the Mar- Marvel DC throwback art that they've now – didn't they be based the DC – Justice League movie on the concept of the Alex Ross art. Yeah, you know, he He, he came, did the covers for the Shadow stuff. He became uh, an artist that I, I first found... I first... I was introduced to his stuff when he did a, a series for Marvel, I think called Marvels. Yeah, and it's amazing paintings. And it was like every every cell, not cell, but every frame was painted. And he, that's he, what he, he does. painted it on a huge can not canvas, but whatever his medium is, and they would kind of compress it down to fit it for comic Because what he does is like what Rockwell did, which was like take photographs. Yeah. And and then use like real people, real images. Norman Rockwell, you yeah. know, yeah. America. And then, you know, for, as the figures, and then paint his versions of it. So, uh, it's a very realistic, not photorealistic, but a much Almost. more, you know, much more than comic book art usually yeah. is. And so when I've had that, when I got those issues back in the day, I just was like, oh my God, because it was like, this is, that's Spider-Man. Like, and, that's what Spider-Man would look like and I think if that's, it was real. That's why he got so popular and it was because a lot of thro- people had that And it reaction. was a throwback. Those issues were a throwback in terms of they were from the perspective, I think, of a photographer in New York City. Or even a, or, and then it's also like, it might be told in flashback, like the guy's a, the a grandfather now, and, and it's either him as a photographer back in the day, or he's a kid, I forget. But and anyway, it's being told from like a, yeah. a third person's point of view of, of the public seeing these figures yeah. in the era we're talking, the Art Deco 40s era of, I think it's like Superman and, and also Marvel. I, I read them so long ago, it's yeah. so amazing. I mean, the Marvel ones, because I know it's like it's Human like, Torch, but I don't think yeah. it's like the Fantastic Four. No, I think it's, it's 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 the, the early, you know, so, but he, I think he does Na- 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 name, yeah, Namor, Namor and, and, you know, uh, those. But he does like Superman. It's amazing stuff. But so but he, he was he drawing became, this. He, yeah. he later became known for his images of Superman. Yeah. But uh, he's he's done all kinds of things, and he's now done. I have uh, some of his art. He, he did recently, the last couple of years, they did a, uh, a re- 
they did a run of uh, 69 Batman and he did the covers so it's like it's it is Adam West and Burt Ward yeah. and then there was a crossover comics of of Batman and Robin and Green Hornet and Kato and he yeah. did those and, uh, phenomenal and so I don't know he, if they're connected to the Batman 66 there's there's thing. crossover issues because I have art of it's the Batmobile it, I actually sold it but it was the 69 Batmobile in the and it was done for that the ones that were it was the, the, co- the it was recent a cover. ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It was a cover. Because so. I didn't know if it was separate. They they I came out with they, a very successful was, Batman sixty six run. I that think it was, was separate, and then okay. I think there was were some issues that were crossed over. That's awesome. But one of the when I started collecting comic book art, one of the first some of the first things I bought were uh, Alex Ross would do for the Shadow run in two thousand eleven to twelve. He started doing uh there was limited editions where they would be like a hundred issues and he would illustrate, he would, some of them were watercolors depending on the run, different issues. Some of them watercolors, some of them were pencils, but he would draw an original image on the covers of each of these issues. So some of the early stuff when I started collecting comic book art are some of these Alex Ross, uh, you know, pencil covers or, you know, where it's original, it's not print. He actually did it right onto the cover. And so so the shadow, that's when I started falling in love with the shadow again because I saw these images. And so now collecting shadow art is a little, it's, you know, a little, a tiny, tiny subdivision because I have some of those by Alex Ross. I have, uh, I have a, a, sh- a sketch of the shadow by Bruce Tim. Yeah. Because I thought that would be, <laughs> I thought that was awesome. You know, what to we have, should do is have, a, have an artist who's so known for Batman at this point, because he's the guy that created Batman, the images for Batman, the animated, animated series, series. Yeah. To have him, an image that he drew of the character that inspired Batman. And then I have a, a, a more contemporary artist that I like a lot named Humberto Ramos. Uh, I had him do a commissioned, just a, a little sketch that he did. Of the shadow form, we should include a couple of these right out of the uh, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers vault in this <laughs> posting, uh, if you're into it. Uh, so that gets us up to then. That's where we are for him as as a character now. And then you come to 1994. We talked about briefly Raimi trying to get a, 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 a hold on it. Um, I I don't know. Do, do they say how it got off the ground? With I mean, I guess it was just something that they were looking for a, to reboot a character. Well, the the producer uh, Martin Bergman apparently he owned the rights to it since 1982, and then uh, so I, I found on the internet. I mean, yeah. who knows what the truth is? <laughs> but uh, well, allegedly right. he 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 had the rights, and I guess it was him that was kind of standing in the way of Raimi doing it. And yeah, the, and, which uh, is what happened with Dick Tracy and Batman while they stuck in limbo for 10 years, the same thing. And and at the time, like you had kind of uh, insinuated, uh, David Kemp at that point was at the peak of his kind of powers. He just had Jurassic Park. Uh, he had had like, he had had a few years where he had like seven yeah, or Carly eight Carly Way, I think, is the same, same year. Come out. Uh, so it was, you know, he was big. And, and apparently he remembered listening to the radio show when it was rerun in his childhood. Obviously, it wasn't yeah. the original run of it, but apparently there was a station. Yeah, they when, put it on the radio. It's probably he, free or whatever. When he was a kid, the CBS would radio would re reran them on Saturday or even on Sunday nights, and he remembered them from as a child when he would listen to them then, and so he was anxious to kind of. They also them reissued them as LPs in the sixties and seventies. Yeah, I have one. Yeah. I, have, I have one of them. You know, and then that's how when I was little, I see at the library they either had these radio shows in cassette form or they'd have them as you know records. You know, you'd listen to those things. Yeah, when I started doing the collecting the art, I I would have the I had the the Alex Ross 
comic book covers and comic book because you can get frames for anything now of course but special comic book frames and then in a record frame i had the the, 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 <laughs> the, the record yeah. um so you get to hanging up next to each other we get to 1994 here um in the movie we're talking about tonight and uh so it it he they create an interesting world here because it's a little tongue-in-cheek to a certain extent where, um, you know, some of the dialogue and stuff, they invent Margot Lane uh, being um, part of... Psychic. Psychic. Uh, there's a, there's a, uh, a really great, which I think we've talked about on this cast, and this is the last tangent we're going to do, and we're going to stick to the 1994 movie for the rest of the cast. But there's a guy named, I think his name's Jose, Jose yeah, you Farmer. Can't, you can't make that promise. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. I'm such a liar. But there's a, there's a guy named... Um, uh, Jose Farmer and he does the um, uh, what is it the Walt Walt Newton theory he came up with and oh yeah we talked about this in Tarzan was it Tarzan well, yeah. where there's two different or Greystoke the legend of Tarzan yeah Lord of the Apes and he came up with he's a writer and he came up with this idea that that Margot Lane is sisters to Lois Lane and they're connected so that means Superman and the Shadow Worlds are connected and the the Walt Newton theory yeah he created this I'm sorry no 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 but he's a writer he's a sci-fi writer did all this stuff and he came up with this theory that back in like the late 1800s this meteor falls in like uh, upper uh, northern England and which is a true story a meteor really fell in Walt Newton whatever this this area was and that driving past in a coach I think that you were like it's a pretty fucking big coach (laughs) Is like Sherlock Holmes' ancestors, all these ancestors that uh, any, and then it, it becomes wider the, the theory that it was any Sam Spade, anybody that's big in the 20th century, literary wise or character wise, are connected because they have these special powers from this, this, the radiation that came off this, uh, um, meteor that crashed and it's almost like the the tommy westfall theory which is also that's come up which is another very interesting theory these two theories you should go check out tommy westfall is a kid from um saint elsewhere where his theory quickly is that he was a boy with autism at the last episode of saint elsewhere uh the the last scene is the 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 people come home and he's looking in a snow globe and the characters are different they're like is there any change with them and you come to find out that the in the snow globe is the St. Elswell Hospital so they're supposed to show at the end of the episode that the whole series of St. Elswell was in the kid's head and if that the Tommy Westfall theory is correct that means it connects to law and order homicide like the, the, because some characters guessed it you start to find out if you can go through through character guest starring or whatever that Tommy Westfall like half of the fictional television canon of the 70s, 80s, and 90s is all in this Tommy Westfall's head. I want to talk to a guy that wrote that episode. I came up with the Yeah, what the hell that, that means. The, the finale. So that's the Tommy, the Tommy Westfall theory, and then it's the Walt Newton theory uh, family, the two different thing, rivals here. So, But uh, getting back to the 1994 movie, so they invent more, and it, I like the, it kind of helps the plot, the invention of having um, uh, Penelope and Miller have that kind of uh, psychic ability because that kind of it, it it's implied that it kind of throws like Alec Baldwin's character off that yeah, she knows well, a little more than she well, should. She's I think in the book in the radio show she's the only person that knows he's Lamont Cranston. Well, like in seeing his face, kind of. Um, but I, I don't know if it's ever it's almost like Lois Lane and Clark Kent. Is it ever imposed that they're lovers, or is it just yeah, ambiguous that they're just you know Jack Benny and Mary Livingston? They're just hanging out together. I think what it does is it eliminates well what they do with this, with her character in the movie is they kind of eliminate this idea of the damsel in distress. Yeah, I think by giving her powers, 
you know, it gives her strength in that she can't be, her mind can't be clouded by him. And so it kind of puts them on, on more equal playing field than, or uh, more equal grounds than some of the other characters. So I think well, it helps in the way, radio show too, because it helps then she's the audience's envoy to be, be there. Yeah. And she explains that, you know, yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, that's like, it's a, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a, in some ways it's, it's a device writing. that's used all the time. You know, like when uh, Dion and I uh, at the time were fans of Downton Abbey. Yeah. And we were writing our uh, <laughs> our fan our fan fiction of Downton Abbey. Well, you know what's interesting about the the first season of Downton Abbey is you have uh, Mr. Bates. Yeah. And who's the? That's a good one. And uh, is it David? Who's the? But the, but the idea is that the gay character. No, the that's Thomas. Sorry. The the guy who's the running down the father the proper. No, the one who marries. <laughs> no, no. Oh, the one who. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. But okay. the idea was that the, that show opens with that shows about two different worlds. Oh, it this starts is, off. In this the is ter- this is connected. People, stay with me here. Yeah. It's con- I've already broke my promise. <laughs> <laughs> but it's connect. But it's 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 uh, two different worlds. It's the upstairs and the downstairs. Yes, which it's is that, a show upstairs downstairs. It's yeah. the help and it's and it's the and it's the rich people. But what that show does is it gives us new characters into those worlds. Oh, Mr. Bates is the new guy. Yeah. In the staff, and I think it was David. He's the new. He's a. He comes because he's re- related somehow. But he doesn't. He's from the Irishman. Do you talking about the Irish guy? He's the blonde guy. He was the main guy until spoiler alert. He gets killed. Oh in the car no! Crash. Yeah, okay. he's the he's the rich. Okay, I'm thinking of the the, the but other. He help. was yeah. the new guy. So the first season is we're introduced to those worlds through characters that that are new to those worlds. Yeah. Which is basically, I mean, it's it, yeah. uh, it's and a, also it's another, a writing device, and then another theory. They're, we're they're the audience for us. That's, yeah, everything's explained to them so that we can catch the up. exposition. It's easier done, and also that the, that show does that where it's it shows the end of one era into the other. Where remember the first episode well, is like the Titanic yeah, yeah. sinking, and that's kind of like. But that's that's later. But yeah. I'm just saying in terms of you you were talking about how Margot Lane is in the radio show is our was the audience coming in there con, you know her con our conduit into the world and then in in the movie they, that part out of the they, <laughs> in the movie here they've also added he's able to he he makes his own face this is the first time i think and it's funny because for me he he's turning into a different baldwin yeah he's turning into a cross between billy and daniel yeah when he puts this because he's so young and i never Back when I saw the movie, I was thinking, like, did they get another actor to stand... Not another Baldwin, but did they get, like, another actor to stand in? And then watching it this time around, I was like, oh, they probably cleverly put some... Is it Stan Winston doing this? I don't know who does the the special do, makeup effects. The makeup. But they do it pretty well enough where, you know, I mean... They kind of give some of that magic away with like the kind of werewolf kind of a transition <laughs> yeah. where you see in the rearview mirror, you know, one, two, three, and he's it's him. It's weird. Because then he, he doesn't look like Al Baldwin anymore. He kind of looks like the shadow. But to me, he looks... Realistic enough, well, he doesn't look like Alec Baldwin in makeup. He kind of looks like Billy Baldwin or Daniel Baldwin, but then he looks like it could be another guy, you know, like a taller. Yeah, yeah. Like I wonder another what actor. the thought process was for that because they probably didn't want to have Alec Baldwin just with like something behind. They wanted to look maybe Alec Baldwin's profile isn't as striking as the, you know, because it's supposed to be so. Uh, at the time, the you know the shadow the nose, was the shadow's nose. We know we know the shadow's <laughs> nose from how iconic it is. That they wanted to give it more of that iconic look that the Rosen brothers had done in the forties. So to do that, they were gonna. And they didn't want to have that on his face the whole damn movie. Have yeah. him have that huge. What did you call that? The claw nose. The, the uh, hawk. Uh, hawk uh, nose. Hawk eye. And 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 what's his face? So um, which, by the way, were some of the agents in the books were hawk 
was. There was one named Hawkeye. Yeah, yeah. And and there's another one too. Trapper, not Trapper John. Tapper. Tapper, Tapper, not Trapper. That's Mash. <laughs> but uh, and then the other line Hawkeye is Hawkeye and Trapper from Mash. what is it like? Crime. The weed of crime bears bitter fruit. That's the line that he would say always at the end. Of yeah. the of the radio show, and they say that the the beginning the beginning scene in this movie I love on the bridge because that's like my world. I've written a book, uh, a screenplay, which could be a book that you read, Morris yeah. P.I. That is exactly. I love the idea of of the thirties, like you're saying, that the historical fiction with well, I don't but like historical op- fiction in general. I just I like that in this kind of a context. Yeah, where they but that's it, uh, on the that bridge, opening scene kind of sets the table. Of what? It's kind of an homage to the very first Gibson's very first novel has a. A similar scene, uh, yeah. not exactly, but a similar scene where a guy is going to kill himself, and then yeah, and he's going to jump off the bridge. The shadow himself. stops the guy, and then the guy, and then the guy comes to his senses, and he's like, "Oh, I don't want to kill myself." And the shadow's like, "Yeah, you don't. And now, now you're. I know you don't want forever. to, but now you got to work for me. Yeah, <laughs> here's a ring. You know, you'll always be on my beck and call, or whatever. And then this is this is how all these other people end up. You know, and he has. And I remember it was so cool that he had the cab when I was little. Uh, the cab is a 1937 Cord 810 Westchester, which is this really weird looking car. And they call the end of it. It has a coffin nose because the hood kind of has like a coffin shape to it. And it's a very singular car because if you look at the all the other cars in the movies, they kind of look like the era, like Fords or whatever. And they found a really distinct car to have it be the taxi. And that is originally Bob Kane I think like the, his first conception of the Batmobile was going to be uh, Bruce Wayne was going to have a, a Cord 810 kind of a look and that was yeah. going to be the car um, but I lo- I always loved that it was a taxi and it could do different things and I had a memory since I hadn't seen this movie in a while that like they hit a button and it turned into like something else or you know like it had like <laughs> well, other it, does it have, could have been just the lights that it go does on and have off the but I, I, I had an idea that it like maybe like I was thinking more like the kind of silly League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. You know how they have that car that turns into a boat? And, and yeah, all that. yeah. It was something like that. But they, they set that up and, um, uh, you know, now, we have Ian McKellen, we said, and all these people. Uh, I was going to say the ring does come from the books. Yeah. And that uh, he the, the Shadow did wear one. And I think he did give them to his agents. In the story, of uh, in the books, it's uh, called a, a, a Gerasol or Gerasol ring. Yeah. Yeah, it's made a fire opal stolen from a tribal idol in the Yucatan jungle, and that gives him the power, which is where he got uh, his from. Yeah, uh, Philip Jose Farmer is the Wald Newton guy. I only said Jose Farmer before. Uh, so we get the idea that the the plot of the movie is that we have this Khan coming back to try to take God. over the God. He's coming to try to take over the world. I love the idea because even the coffin coming—that's the the silver, the the whole silver coffin—is another. Uh, reference to one of the old s- stories, and I love the idea that you know when, when it's delivered to the museum. They don't know about the delivery. They open it up. It's him, yeah. and uh, he he comes out, and then like you know he's able to like he has the guard kill himself, and then when he comes out, suddenly he's walking around in Genghis Khan M- Mongol you know armor in New York City, taxi. yeah, and and he's he's hailing taxis and stuff. But I guess. You, the leap is that he's maybe he's reading people's minds, so he's understanding oh, the true. culture more. So by the time he gets out of the cab and the cab, he's like, "I want some money." He's able. He's starting to, you know. And then the next scene, he might be in his. But then they never explain. Suddenly, he has like a thousand Mongols. It's like, is he hiring them from an agency, <laughs> or is he? Did they come with him? Yeah, the, yeah, the, exactly. They came late. You know, the <laughs> shipment arrived. You know, and I love the idea that like that the the he's 
he has that uh, layer, which is the hotel that was completed. That's been he's hiding yeah. on like a because you know Blake and I in New York City we always see that there's always these like empty lots, empty lots where a building used to be that's sitting there. And I love the idea that this um, the one thing you know we talked to that the, this thing's we, hiding there. We opened this show kind of pointing out things that you know are maybe not less or maybe less than perfect about the movie. But I will say my least favorite part of the movie is the fake beard. On him for 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 uh, was David Lone or whatever yeah it's weird it's weird because it John doesn't Lone's it weird. doesn't fit right but then I was thinking maybe it's supposed to because sometimes um, you know of Asian people they won't grow a thick some people like me I can't grow a thick beard yeah, yeah. so I was thinking maybe he can just grow he doesn't grow a beard well and that's how it is you know some people when they grow it really long it looks kind of scraggly but it it does in other scenes look like it's just being held up by spirit gum yeah <coughs> um and then. Uh, also, you have the other character. The other subplot running is that Ian McKellen, who is Margot Lane's father in the movie, he's an eccentric scientist who's building basically in the 30s. What's going to be? He's 10 years early building an atomic bomb, and he's working for I think Tim Curry is supposed to be from the OSS, which is the forerunner to the CIA before the end of World War II, and I think that he's building it for the government. This this special, you know. Uh, Weapon that's going to help them win the war or whatever, or they don't want the access of power to to uh, to get it. And then it little do you know that Tim Curry is actually working for Khan in the movie Khan, and it's all included at the end of the movie. Now, uh, before we we leave off on Tim Curry's character, uh, I was thinking, um, you know how he kind of goes crazy. They give him a Thompson at the end, and he kind of goes insane and yeah, he shoots yeah. everything. I, and then that last bit there, I think that's basically our lost audition tape for the Joker. And I bet you if he had gone and if you go back to our Batman animated series cast, he was supposed to be the Joker before they gave it to, um, uh, what's his face? Luke Skywalker? Mark Hamill. Mark Hamill. That I feel like, I feel like we, we both remember... An episode with him as the Joker. I, yeah. I remember the first episode. I thought that was him, but there is. They've since come out with audition tape of him. But they say that they they decided against it because his Joker was too scary for yeah. for the show. But I felt like his hysteria there was kind of because it is the era ninety three ninety four. It's him like doing almost a, a Joker impression. That's kind yeah. of a little too scary, you know. Even for me, I was like, oh, he's getting a little crazy there. But I mean, him his interaction with Ian McKellen, he's really ha- hamming it up. Tim Curry, and it, it does feel like he's he was told to like you know all right you know act kind of really silly here, uh, and even at the end you have like a little ode to like I think Enter the Dragon with the Hall of Mirrors, which also probably is in itself an ode to an earlier yeah you yeah. know story going through yeah it. I think it, I think it's his one in one of the or you know, there's another there's a movie that has that but there's a something happened with the hall with the mirrors yeah there was an earthquake and in uh, one of the uh, LA earthquakes of the early 90s they had this elaborate set built and then it's almost like Jurassic Park we talked about when when Samuel Jackson's death was supposed to be grander but then there was this big tropical storm that destroyed the set so that's why Samuel Jackson's just character just disappears at the end of Jurassic Park here they were going to have this big elaborate uh, finish for um uh, the two characters, Khan, going after the shadow, but because the the set was destroyed, they didn't have the money or the time to remake it, so they just you know were able to piece together what they had in here. Um, one of the things I love about this movie is that since it's on the cusp of CGI, we always have this conversation about CGI. Uh, the end of this era of of practical effects into CGI, and we've covered a lot of movies like Dick Tracy or or all these films that were just on the end of the the practical effects 
uh, rain with like you know uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit before you get into Terminator 2 and you get into uh, other movies like Jurassic Park is that for the most part there is some CGI in this movie but there's they are still doing a lot of practical effects and I love the all the production design shots of them having um, of of uh, uh, you, you see that they've actually built like these New York City 30s, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, uh, buildings, which very much is out of like, you know, Anton first doing like in, in Batman Gotham City or them doing it in Blade Runner. So you have these beautiful shots with they because I think that substitutes for them not having the budget to do these big uh, proper wide shots with like uh, matte paintings and stuff. But you end up having... Um, you know, the camera fly around these are your transitions and i love it because they almost look real some of the, the 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 buildings are done in such a beautiful way like a lot of the long there's a, there's a scene where you see them looking out a window and you could see like 30s manhattan with the bridges and it's amazing and even the scene yeah. where uh under a trance the uh, con brings ian mckellen up to the empire state building to kind of gauge maybe it's the same scene how the big the bomb would be his detonation. Yeah, yeah. Th- that whole scene up on top of Empire State Building, circa 1937-38, where he gets the sailor to jump, which is well, that, terrifying. That guy's in a lot of stuff now. Yeah, that I love that too. I think I love the production of that. So I I really dig all that aspect the of the production tube. stuff. Well, that stuff that's silly because I was still, I was thinking I'm not that silly, but I was thinking like Jesus, if they had a, they'd have to send like rats in the you know if there was a imagine if something gets somebody dies because the shatter didn't get his his information, you know, <laughs> and that's another up. thing too. Like there's that guy, what's his name? You said the uh, I forget the character that sits in that room, but he gets all that stuff and, and he pieces. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. He puts all the yeah. The clues well, you together. know, in the you know, I have a book called like the Shadow Scrapbook. Oh yeah, we haven't even brought that up yet. And it's uh, it was written by I'm some, so jealous by somebody and Walter Gibson back in the seventies, I think. And my copy, I bought it because it was signed by Walter Gibson. But um, they have a whole chapter dedicated to the Shadow Code because the because sh- the Shadows agents they all had codes. Yeah, and so it has like the keys. So he actually did Walter Gibson. Uh, so that's another thing too because since we talked about since Walter Gibson had an intimate knowledge of magician, he was a magician. He goes wrote for Harry Houdini and all these other people. He would bring that knowledge into and that's something you see with like people who are, you know, of the private detectives like the guy like uh, Dashiell Hammett he was a private detective for a little while so when he wrote the Continental Op he was able to bring the methods in so to have that's amazing Gibson like knowing about yeah, there's all these keys yeah in, in the book in the in this book the scrapbook which might have been printed in, in, the, in the novels well, I don't know well, they but, t- yeah but they kind of they hint at it in the movie but because they don't have time to have them sit there and breaking codes it's yeah. like the pa- you know it's like it's like a mental code or something like the, they get the paper and you can read the note and then it oh, goes, yeah, it goes away because it's because it's him clouding it's kind of like they, it's they kind of they, they needed a more cinematic faster quicker version to, yeah to make the codes but that all that stuff was in the novels that have the guy and they the the door is where they the, the guy name, puts, yeah, Dave, whatever it is, the Davis, door, yeah, what whatever the do. door says, where they put the guy, the, I think it's the cop, puts the message yeah. in through the mail slot. That's all from the from the book, and it's amazing that so since Gibson had all this intimate knowledge, he's able to have like the shadow had like false pockets with, you know, this he'd have like one 
uh, one liquid on one finger on his thumb, so he'd put it together and make an explosion, or he'd be able to, or he was a sleight of hand, and it's all about the, um, not the prestige, but misdirection, like a magician does, and that's all what the shadow does. So no wonder why there was, he was, this character was so famous for all these darn years. Um, at the beginning, too, it's funny when they, when, when you see uh, Alec Baldwin having to go up to that Buddhist temple to, to, to learn the ways. Uh, and he's like, is that supposed to be a temple? And he's like, no, that is, and the cloud goes away. Yeah. To me, that looked like a cobra, like G.I. Joe cobra. <laughs> you, know, one of the, you know those elaborate hideouts the in the show? Technodrome. Yeah, it's there. like one of those, you know, one of those things. Uh, and then also, since we're talking about map paintings, that you said it before, there's that shot, uh, which is for me like the money shot in Times Square, where he gets, it looks so awesome when they get out of Times Square, and it looks it looks very realistic to me, like seamless, the map painting. Yeah, yeah. It looks beautiful of late by 30s, then they you know. might have been incorporating some digital stuff by then, because I remember there was a, in the mid, it must have been in the mid-90s, there was a, I think it was on NBC, and I might have brought this up in a previous episode, there was a special effects special on and it was hosted by Roy Scheider and Jonathan Brandis. You might have brought this up because of Se- Sequest. Yeah. Because of Sequest, and uh, they talk about in the Mouth of Madness. They talk about a bunch of movies, and I feel like they talk about this movie with the not just the the knife, which by way by the Frank way Welker. is voiced by Frank Welker. I but heard that is also uh, it's called the Perba. And the the idea of it is true. There, there's a real Tibetan knife that is an instrument to fight demons. Oh, really? That's a whole <laughs> yes. Yeah, like because like I always found that when I was a little freaky that he picks the knife up and it has a little face and it can bite you. And I was yeah. like, oh, that's you know that that t- that was kind of like unsettling to me. And I like that whole. But idea. I remember this. I feel like this special has the knife, but also when uh, Khan is sitting and the tapestry. Oh, it's, yeah, kinda yeah. Kind of comes alive. I remember that from a special effects show. Yeah. I mean, he even uses, to the shadow, he the, the, uh, he has an auto gyro, which is an early version of a gyrocopter, which is the early version of, like, the Sikorsky helicopter. Um, also, from the movie, which I love, from the comic, he has two silver forty five automatic Colt 1911s, which I think is probably the most I identical. I say his, you know, that his costume. That look is amazing. It's so badass It's so awesome. Because you know? even when he loses the hat and the cape, yeah. he's just got like the collar up. Oh, and, and the, the, the shoulders. The 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 yeah. and, and he's running around like, he looks so badass. And it's the, the forty fives. I mean, I think those are the most recognizable automatic handguns probably uh, for most people. I mean, it, in, in the Colt 1911, they call it the 1911 because the, it never was really changed for a hundred years that you know the mechanism of the yeah. of the of the automatic forty five. If it ain't broke, don't yeah, don't fix, fix it. it. Uh, I, I it's a it's a great it's a it's an amazing look and it, it goes back to the the popes where it's like he was just killing people. He wasn't you know he had two forty fives and and he was the like Stranko said he was the. Uh, Judge, jury, and executioner. He was the death penalty. And I don't know if... I see, am the law. Yeah, you are law. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to war. Uh, and I don't know if we even fleshed out the character enough, the shadow, but it's like, you know, he would use this stealth and illusion to, like, thwart crime. He and, was. He was a magician. Yeah, he was all a detective. This, he was, and he was like Sherlock Holmes. I mean, he was infallible in his, in his deduction. He was always where he needed to be until the last in second. The, in the books, he, no matter where the story was taking place, he spoke the language fluently. Yeah. It's a little bit hinted nah. at here in the movie. When only, he goes to the, only Mandarin. When he goes to the Chinese restaurant. But you can also just assume... Because the movie takes place in Asia in the beginning of the movie, yeah, that's then, how he knows he his knows Mandarin. Uh, I like I said, I think Jonathan Winters has a little, f- very funny little part in it. Uh, I miss Jonathan Winters. I do too. I do too. 
Uh, you know what's really freaky for me in this too was you know that scene it reminds me of Poltergeist you know the dream sequence in Poltergeist where that guy rips his face yeah, off and yeah. the, that scene where Alec Baldwin puts his hands in his it looks so realistic and it's I, that could have got an R rating right then yeah. you know and then she, some of the comedy is kind of funny yeah though. she's describing her dream oh yeah it's very and, yeah and it's like all sexy and she's like well, what would you dream he's like well I dreamed that I to- tore all the skin off my face and I was another person underneath well she she's has like, you have problems he's like I know and she has it's funny because because it seemed like there was a couple years there where like Penelope Ann Miller was contractually obligated to be in every movie. She's like, and she'd get nude in every movie too. You'd see like some of her unmentionables. She was in a movie that I would love to do at some point on the show. The uh, was it the Freshman? Oh, Ooh. we just brought that up. <laughs> She's in because the, the oh because the DP from play, um, Bullet did, did that. I think she plays, uh, my, to my recollection, she plays Brando's daughter. Yeah. And so she's kind of the love interest for Matthew Broderick. Uh, it's funny, the billboard in the movie, uh, which w- w- was it, the llama, it, and the, it's, I would climb a mountain for a llama. And in real life, there was a very famous, maybe in New York City, camel cigarettes billboard that would p- blow smoke. And it would, and their tagline was, I'd walk a mile for a camel. And you and I brought up, uh, Joe, Quince, Camel? Joe Camel. They remember <laughs> earlier in the year because Joe Camel used to be. Uh, you know they can't have him anymore because you know it was marketing to kids. They'd say, it. but like Joe Camel, and it was supposed to be like a very phallic, where like in in his nose and 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 top of the mouth was like a penis and genitalia. People would say, and you know all kinds of weird. But there was a lot of nods in the movie. Uh, you know. Uh, you know, to, to, to different things or original product placement. Blue Coal was the original advertiser for the Shadow Radio Show back in the day. So there's like a nod or two in the movie of that. So, so there's a sign for Baldwin Pianos. Yeah. And then at the end, there's a, there's a truck that has Mulcahy yeah. printed on the side, which is Russell Mulcahy. So there's a lot on the background. There's all these little nods to the movie. And, and then the, the, the inspector guy that he's dealing with, who's like the guy under um, uh, Jonathan Winters, is like the forerunner to the Commissioner Gordon. Uh, so it's it's I I enjoyed the movie very well. It, to me, it feels like it was a rush job, maybe because of budgetary restrictions that like they, they had a limited, like it, you said, it feels claustrophobic and they have to get things running. It does feel like it does feel like it doesn't have, whether it's true or not, it does feel like it didn't have the budget yeah. of something like uh, Rocketeer yeah. or Dick Tracy or Batman. It seems like they were trying to do that with less money. Whether that's the case or not, we don't know. I don't know. I know that they did have, <laughs> they were cut back on budget. They did have budgetary restrictions and they had to fight for a lot of stuff. And there, you know, it's, it's, it's a shame because, it, you know, the movie did not do well. They did a toy line, like we said. I'm sure they did a comic book line at the time, which we might have already talked a, about. There was a video game that's where in I'm, the works. Yeah, there was the video game that they completed, but because the movie didn't do well, they never released it. And to me, I would think they would have still released it to take the loss. But now I would think that would be like a, an Easter egg for all the old, you know, how you can get those, um, those uh, um, what do you call those, modules that you can yeah. play. I'm surprised that hasn't come up like the secret unreleased Shadow game, which I'm sure could have been like the Dick Tracy game where you drive in the car around at different places or the Batman Super game. Nintendo, it was I a think. Super Nintendo game that never got made. Well, there was at a point, you know, tied into the beginning of the show, there was at a point a Snake Plissken video game. They made it? I think we maybe talked about it. We must have talked about it in Escape from New York. And you can see, even on YouTube, you can see, like, samples of the gameplay. Whether it ever... It never got released. I think it was maybe PlayStation 1. It's it's interesting. And then, like, I don't know why they wouldn't release it. And then there's influences for people 
nowadays who will get this. Alan Moore, who's the uh, very prolific uh, comic book writer, and he's wrote, I think, a couple novels, but he's really known for his comic books. He wrote V for Vendetta, uh, which was a miniseries, and then that character wears a kind of a mask, and he got his influence from that from The Shadow, the V for Vendetta mask and the guy, and then he in that movie's what he's Guy Fox, maybe the the uh, the person who's the uh, tried to blow up the parliament in England. But people will know that nowadays because a lot of the people who the anarchists or whatever you call those people, they who riot, yeah. you know, they they wear that that mask that with the little smile and then you know with the little almost like a Van Dyke, mm-hmm. you know, that is the mask from V for Vendetta, the Alan Moore story, and that is a reference from The Shadow. So, you know, all kind of comes around here. I feel like we've been all over the place for this cast, probably because it's, it was such a big topic. We have a couple drinks, and we'd gotten tired. <laughs> we'd eaten, and we, you know, we were, and then we had a lot of business at the at the, the top to talk about like uh, exchanging presents and stuff. And you know, we tried to do it our all, and it was it's it's hard because it's so around the houses. The um, you know, the uh, the the thingy you know with the uh how to how to tackle it and because there's so much there's the radio backstory there's the literary backstory that ties together for the movie sadly the movie doesn't end up doing very well right yeah because they were expecting for it to be a franchise yeah and it's and it's one of these things where like you know whoa i don't know why you wonder why it just didn't do well and then it was of the era like soon after that i don't know i I can't remember i don't remember when the getaway came out or or some of the other alec baldwin fair of the time but when he i mean because remember he did he was straight he did the he played the first jack ryan in uh and hunt for red october and mm-hmm. i don't remember if they didn't ask him back or he said no and he went and did something else and that's why they got harrison ford but he did that and he, he did a couple other very serious big movies which yeah I can't he think also of. did uh one of those like thriller he he did like a thriller at some point i just remember it because Terry Hatcher's naked in it, and of course, <laughs> yeah, you know. And then he started doing comedy, you know, in the late '90s. He did that Rhode Island movie, which I don't remember. He plays the father in it or something like. Uh, and then, and then, then suddenly, because he then becomes a larger in life personality with like uh, him getting political or notoriously like bawling his thirteen-year-old daughter out, calling her a pig and fat on a voicemail that she released, and all this stuff. And then him getting political, and then him having another life as like a of doing talk now he does like the match game show and he's he's become such another you know he was doing those commercials for for the credit card commercials but then he got such bad press for that they dropped him and they have capital one they have samuel jackson doing it now so it's like he's become like he has so much baggage now i don't know if you can have him go back to that world of being like the straight well, I don't think so. Or if he even want to, you know. I don't. Yeah, I think he's aged out of it too. Yeah, uh, you know they don't have. It's not like the seventies that we talked about with Walter Matthau. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and even, uh, you know, that we talk about the old days where you could have like a, a forty or fifty year old guy play a, a love interest or a, a hero in a movie. It yeah. just doesn't. It doesn't. We talk about it in Taken too because, you know, it just doesn't happen as often. Um, you know, we need to remember too. Next time we're around, and we have remember, we have to remember that we forgot to bring up and taken that the original, the man who knew too much with Jimmy Stewart, the remake that Hitchcock remade himself, that that's almost the original Taken with Doris Day. Because I watched that soon after the Taken podcast, I was like, Jesus, it's, <laughs> it's Taken if uh, Liam Neeson decided to bring uh, Famke Jansen along and, and then have a Bernard Herman score. So uh, let's see. We hope you like this this anniversary episode of our Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers yes, podcast. It's a 
little uh, half dash. It's a little scattered, but yeah. uh, you can follow the threads, hopefully. And the week after begins October, and you know our there are October horror movie weekend extravaganza. Yeah, <laughs> Halloween extravaganza. Well, for people who don't know, we do four <laughs> movies a. Uh, for each week in October for horror movies. Double our workload. Yeah, and then all of a sudden we're um, we're into um, November and the holidays. So, uh, you know, it's very exciting. And we'd like to thank all of our listeners and the new listeners and people who've been with us for continuing to support us and help us get this thing bigger and better uh, over the years. And, and now entering year five. Yeah, which is insane. Uh, half a decade. Um uh, we'd, so we'd just like to thank everybody for, for, for helping us along and, and, and your continued support. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. You can find us there uh, promoting our stuff. You can like us. You can tweet us. You can message us. You can uh, sh- retweet, share our stuff. And you can interact with us. Uh, over there, we have our own website, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, where, like we said, we'll have a lot of extras for every episode. Maybe we'll have some of the art Blake was talking about or some of the extras to the to the radio shows and every other podcast we do. We have extras on that on our website for those specific episodes, specific extras. And, of course, we're on iTunes and Stitcher and also now at CL- clnsmedia.com. Yes, clnsmedia.com. We're with them. Uh, they're a media... Uh, uh, no, they're with us. Dude. Yeah, they're with <laughs> They're 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 a media network, and if you go to their website clnsmedia.com, they uh, under their um, they have a podcast tab and also a lifestyle tab. They got some some cool other shows, '80s shows, wrestling shows, yeah. And they do a lot of sports stuff. If you're into sports, they do a lot of sports stuff. They're also Boston centric sports stuff. So if you're into your sports, there uh, you can get them there. Uh, Blake, you have a book. Scored to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers, available on Amazon and probably most other places. And also uh, Scored to Death, the podcast, which is also available on iTunes, Stitcher, and most places you find podcasts. Yeah. I've got a new book out as well called Blood in the Streets. It's going to be out December the 4th of this year. Uh, it is available for pre-order on Amazon right now. If you want to go uh, pre-order it and check it out, uh, that's a fiction thriller I've written, so uh, I talked about it in the last Bullets episode. Uh, you can follow that. Uh, it, we have a Twitter page. We have an Instagram page. Uh, Blood in the Streets novel. You can find it. Um, if you go to my uh, Twitter page, uh, Dion Baya, or my Instagram page, there's links there. Uh, if Go check it out. Pre-order it. That'll be awesome if you want to support me, us. Be lovely. Uh, and uh, we'll be back uh, very soon with an all-new episode. So thank you very much for your time, your support, your love, <laughs> uh, your friendship. and uh, filibustering. Yeah, and, and we will uh, see you very soon. Later. A shadow in a moment. But first... Remember when you were a kid, Mr. Motorist? Remember how full of vim, vigor, and daring you were? How reckless or thoughtless you were at times? How many chances you took on your way to and from school? Well, all of us take for granted our right to live and be sound of body. But the National Safety Council, conducting a back-to-school safety campaign this month, reminds all motorists that other kids, just like you, are on the streets today. Kids who forget the safety rules sometimes. Kids who like to show off their recklessness. Kids who take it for granted that you won't run them down. So the next time you're tempted to drive heedlessly, think of your own childhood. And remember, today's children are just like you. Give them a break.